free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Welcome, uh, white nationalists, Christian Israel, all truth lovers the world over. This is the Restoration Hour, Eurofolk Radio. Today is May 7, 2022. And tonight our guest is uh, Matt Raphael Johnson, historian and Russia expert. Uh, probably one of the top experts on Russia in America. Maybe even in uh, in Russia, <laughs> right? Because uh, being an American, uh, Mr. Johnson has an objective worldview towards uh, international politics in other countries. So I bet that will come to play. So, Matt, how are you doing? Yeah, Eli, it's been way too long. I think yeah. The last time we spoke was at Freedom Palooza, the Poker Face, and Paul Tapiti. Yeah. Uh, we got to do this more often. Absolutely, especially since times are heating up, and boy, are they heating up. And uh, we've got a situation. Well, we're going to try to cover Russian history uh, from uh, early on, uh, the uh, imperialist Russia period, around the time of the Civil War and uh, up to the present time, the Ukraine-Russia antagonism that we are seeing in the world today, which is uh, it's looking like it's going to break out into World War III. We'll see. But first, I'd like to uh, play an excerpt from... Uh, Boris Johnson. Putin launched his onslaught. We sent you. This is Boris Johnson telling how uh, Britain is going to provide arms and materiel to Ukraine. Here we go. Plane loads of anti tank missiles, uh, the Enlavs, which I think have now become uh, popular uh, in Kiev and elsewhere. And we have intensified that vital effort working with dozens of countries, helping to coordinate an ever bigger supply line. And we're sending many uh, thousands of weapons of every kind, including tanks now and armoured vehicles. In the coming weeks, we in the UK will be sending you brimstone anti-ship missiles and stormer anti-aircraft systems. And we're providing... Did he say brimstone? <laughs> They're stealing biblical names for their missiles. Riding armored vehicles to evacuate civilians from areas under attack and protect officials, as what Volodymyr mentioned to me in our most recent call, protect officials while they maintain critical infrastructure. I can announce today from the UK government a new package of support totaling £300 million, including radars to pinpoint the artillery bombarding your cities, heavy-lift drones to supply your forces, and thousands of night vision devices. We will carry on supplying Ukraine alongside your other friends with weapons, funding, and humanitarian aid until we have achieved our long-term goal, which must be so to fortify Ukraine 
that no one will ever dare attack you. Okay, again, you know, to, we will fight to the last Ukrainian, as Zelensky has stated. Of course, he is not a, a real Ukrainian. He is a Jew. A pro, I don't, maybe you know where he was born. He might not even be a natural-born Ukrainian. But here we see the ramping up of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, those of us who you know, follow Eurofolk Radio and nationalist Russia, and nationalists everywhere, really, we know that NATO has been uh, instigating this for uh, since 2014. Okay, so uh, before uh, before we get into the discussion of this, Matt, why don't you just give, give us a little bit of your credentials, uh, how you got into becoming a historian and especially a historian for Russia? Over to you. Well, I converted um, to the, uh, the Serbian Orthodox Church and then the Russian Orthodox Church many many years ago, and I was in my twenties. Ah. Um, I got my PhD in the history of political ideas from three departments uh, at the University of Nebraska back in uh, 99. And um, I had some excellent teachers. One was a great Donald uh, Rosenberg, a Russian Orthodox head of the National Traditionalist Caucus in New York City, who was my first teacher on most of these things. Uh -huh. He got me involved not only in nationalism but also in royalism, its connection to the church, to the moral code, and why Russia is so much different um, than, um, than everywhere else. And he introduced me to an entire world. I was also part of the Ukrainian church for a long – I mean it's all one church, just different, different – right. uh, the fact that orthodoxy is organized on ethnic lines is very important. Um, I have 16 books out I think or – I can never remember. Uh, <laughs> most of them on, on Russian and um, Russian history and, and politics. But the more significant one for us is, is the book called Ukrainian Nationalism published okay. by Romada Press and uh, Russia Insider just in 2020. Okay. Where I do make a case for a legitimate Ukrainian nationalism. It certainly doesn't exist today. These people are cosmopolitans. They have nothing to do with – there is a legitimate case to be made um, as there is for, for a Russian one. But that's not what's happening. Right. And, um, so I've been writing and researching and talking to guys like you for 30 years now. And, uh, and you know, I just got married in February. When I was on my honeymoon, this thing explodes. This right. is the second time that's happened <laughs> to me, by the way. Yeah, okay. I'm away and something happens. Right, you know, and so so things are looking up, but um, uh, and things are looking up in the east as well. Don't let the media fool you on this stuff. This is a very technical, difficult area most people don't know anything about, and it's good to get someone who does this stuff full time uh, to deal with some of the details here. Right, right, okay, yes, because we have been following this conflict, and we have been presenting both sides actually. The mass media, which of course is controlled by the international Jew, does not present the Russian side at all. Okay, uh, Doc Waterman and I were following the conflict in 2014 when we uh, reported that the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, were, were sending people to Ukraine, uh, dressing them up as Nazis, giving them swastika armbands, and they started executing civilians. Okay, we weren't sure which civilians they were executing at the time, but at the time, the two, uh, what do you call it, uh, provinces? Uh, that are now called, I believe, the Donbass. Maybe you can uh, clarify that. There's two provinces that left Ukraine and now are part of Russia, and they did so voluntarily because they don't consider themselves Ukrainians, but they consider themselves Russians. Do you concur with that analysis? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm the first one to bring that to the you know attention of, of our people back in 2014. 
I translated their Declaration of Independence and their Constitution for the first time wow. uh, into English. And there you have condemnations of usury and globalization and deindustrialization and, and everything else. And um, the, the Maidan coup in 2014 was essentially privatizing the country to pay off debt. And because not any faith in the Ukrainian currency or system, these mostly Jewish oligarchs were simply strip mining what was left of the economy and selling it off and paying debt or, or moving to the to the West and, and you know, putting their accounts in New York City and Geneva. But the most um, important economically, uh, both in terms of natural resources and industry, is the Donbass, uh, New Russia or uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, um, fought the what was, you know, very poorly organized Ukrainian army and defeated them and created what can only be considered now a social nationalist uh, state, New Russia, uh, only recently uh, recognized by, by Russia. They want to be a part of Russia like, um, like right. uh, Crimea is. And they showed it can be done. They showed that victory can be, can be had. And ever since then, uh, the Ukrainian gov- – well, Ukraine is a colony of the U.S. There is right. no independent Ukraine by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. And uh, starting in 2004 as well as 2014. And um, they have been shelling and attacking, uh, violating every treaty they could come up with. They've killed over 40,000 civilians on the other side of the border. Right. Um, and this is one of the things that, that provoked, finally provoked the, the uh, Russian invasion right. uh, to protect them. They would have been wiped out by now. Now, uh, were you, the plan date was, over, was um, overruled one uh-huh. day. Had you, had you waited one day, you would have had a mass genocide using uh, um, chemical weapons in, in the Donbass. So, right. so this is a big deal, not just for uh, our people, uh, for Russia, but also for our people too. Yeah, okay. So we've been reporting that the main reason uh, that we could determine anyway for Russia invading Ukraine was to take out their uh, bioweapons labs that were placed along the border of Russia and I think also Belarus, if I'm not mistaken. And so uh, more and more reporting has proved that that is accurate. How do you see that? Uh, that has a lot to do with it. Um, there's other reasons too. But once the Russians got wind of the chemical program, uh-huh. which is mostly a private sector and contract with the American Pentagon, right? Uh, and they were planning this assault on on uh, Nova Russia, New Russia. Um, they said they better move quickly, or uh, or they're going to be you know mass death, and the U.S. would have covered right. for them. And that so that's that's a huge part of it: the nuclear issue, the chemical issue, of course, the economic issue, but the Proximate cause was the genocide against uh, New Russia uh, since, okay. since 2014. Yes, Th- that would be a really good reason, <laughs> right? But the, now uh, I understand also that Victoria Newland, who is our Jewish uh, so-called ambassador to the United Nations, and of course the Bidens and even Barack Obama are heavily invested in the bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Uh, do you know anything about that? Oh, sure. I mean, this is all private sector stuff. Uh-huh. Um, there's a revolving door between the private sector and these government positions. We've known that for a long time. Um, and this is nothing new. Uh, the regime was calling this a conspiracy theory for, for a long time, <laughs> very recently. Right. And all of a sudden, one day, you went, Victoria Newland admits this. Or, or I'm sorry, in her testimony. Yeah. Admits this. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. was supposed to say that. It was incredibly <laughs> stupid. Yes. And, uh, and then that's it. Then they had the UN hearings that the Russians called. And and there are all these ritual condemnations, but the Russians were showing pictures and floor plans and receipts and the money and the, and, right. and the electronic uh, money. Uh, it, it, you know, there was no denying it. And the and big fat wallet of the Joe Biden. People, <laughs> yeah, please. Well, sorry. Yeah, it was only the Africans who who supported Russia and, and that was in that UN hearing, which always made me laugh. Right. Um, and then and then the U.S. 
said, we refuse to, we're not going to address this at all. We will not give this any credence. And so they sat silent. Right. Okay. Yeah. But as we just found out from the tape uh, that I played, uh, UK is not remaining silent. UK is uh, expressing their overall support, uh, military and otherwise, for Ukraine, which we can expect because uh, as we have been reporting all along for these last, what is it now, eight years, that Ukraine is a subsidiary of the Jewish International, you know, Rothschild Incorporated, and uh, it was an unseated, a duly elected government in Ukraine and replaced it with Jewish oligarchs. Okay, is that is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's immediately what happened after um, after the Soviet Union fell to pieces. Um, the U.S. and the, and the major banks rigged these, you know, um, privatization shares, these vouchers. And there was all kinds of insider trading and ultimately a handful. There was only one non-Jewish oligarch in Russia, at least. That was Batanin. Right. Overwhelmingly, this oligarchy came into existence in the 90s. And over the last decade, they have this project, that, uh, uh, something that I broke, uh, called New Kazadi, which was supposed to replace the Zionist entity in, in Israel, which, of course, is struggling uh, all the sure. time. Okay. And this was based in Odessa. Where the largest uh, synagogue complex on planet Earth is located, it thinks a really? billion dollars, okay. and Rus- the Russian invasion has broken it. Uh, now you talk about the IDF; you're absolutely right. They were all over this. You had um, refugees from Israel coming into the southern part of of Ukraine. Uh, they were gonna, and the IDF had advisors and everything else. This invasion, among many other things, was meant to break this new Kazaria, which was based entirely on the oligarchical rule. And you have some extremists. I don't know if Shabbat is in on this or not, but this is where the Messiah is going to show up, at least initially. They uh-huh. really thought this was going to be Odessa. Okay. And um, I don't know, I don't know how, how much that's a majority opinion or not, but that's why you have this gigantic, gigantic um, uh, synagogue complex uh, in, in the city, the largest in the world. Wow. Very interesting. Very tr- Well, one of the things we also reported was the fact that it was a Russian Jewish oligarch who actually paid for the uh, tattoos and swastikas on the bodies of Ukrainian soldiers who uh, are are then depicted by mass media as Nazis. What do you make of this whole Nazi propaganda? Well, this is one thing in the Russian case that I disagree with. The Russian position is that the U.S. is unwittingly or even wittingly supporting uh, this this, uh, Nazism. Um, And these groups have uh, without question have IDF connections, you know, as of battalion okay. and the rest of it, right sector. They number at most when the before the war started, they numbered about maybe four thousand fighters, maybe five thousand. Okay. Well supplied from the West. Most of their structure is now gone. But when they were running for office in Ukraine, they got at the most between one and maybe one point five percent of the vote. They okay. have a very nationalist society in Ukraine. A lot of the anti you know, the pro Russian parties were kicked out. So they had the whole field to themselves and wow. they still couldn't get so there's there's definitely a distrust about those groups right in Ukraine even to this very oh, yeah. day, and they're yes. the only ones who autonomously are are fighting. But even there, they're they're they've lost steam some time ago. There's no fuel left for them. Right. Well, and they're supplied by Zelensky's regime anyway. Okay, that was the initial report that I heard that Zelensky basically Zelensky was arming thugs. Okay. Before they were called Nazis, right? And they, they actually had gang wars amongst themselves and were actually fighting against Russia, uh, shooting at uh, Russian vehicles from the tops of high rises. When uh, and then the, the Russian tanks would return fire and blow blow the building up, right? And so this is all being reported as a Russian, uh, an outright Russian invasion with no 
cause. The Russians have no cause for invading Ukraine. This is how the West is reporting it, or the Jewish press is recording it. Okay. Now, now you also have uh, – yeah, if you want to comment on that real quick. Well, you probably know what Johnson's Law is. It's uh, something okay. that I formulated where it says the more obscure the country, the more the media can simply make stuff up. Right. Because there's so <laughs> few people who know any better. And yeah. what could be more obscure in eastern Ukraine and parts of you – no one knows anything about this. Russia specialists in America and the universities are, are a disaster. They could say whatever the heck they want. Can you imagine for no reason, just for the sake of some imperial drive, uh, cost the economy a fortune? But uh, that's what they, they could – you have very few people who know anything in detail about this part of the world. So the media can say – either they could say whatever they want, lie deliberately, or simply just simply not know themselves and make all kinds of mistakes. That's, right. that's been happening for a long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's par for the course. Western media, Jewish-controlled media since the 1950s forward and even before then, okay, because they're always covering up for the international bankers. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, as a resident of Chicago, I remember that the Chicago Tribune was the last major publication to uh, kowtow and to be sell, sold out to the international Jews, right? Every other publication in America had already sold out to the Jews. So all you get is Jewish disinformation from 1950s on, okay? And, and, and it wasn't much better before the 1950s. But so, and then you also, uh, one of the books uh, that I've read of yours dealt with Russian history, uh, the... Uh, Oh, what are they called now? The uh, the no, the Russian nobles uh, and uh, the dealings uh, with the kings, uh, the czars. Uh, what was the title of that book? I forget the title now. Well, there there are a few uh, that deal with okay. those. Okay. I have the lectures on medieval Russia. I have um, the lectures on the unbelievers. I have the uh, Third Rome, which was the very first book I ever wrote. Okay. And they all tend to surround that that particular issue, which is you know centrally, uh, critically historical importance. Yes. You can't think of the title because there's so many with that with that it kind might of topic. Have, it, it might have been Third Rome. It had a lot to do uh, with the nobles and the czars and the inter relationship between the two and the often uh, tense relationship between the czar and the nobles. And, uh, and there's a name for those nobles uh, in, in the Russian. Oh, the, Russian. the old the old boyar class. Boyar, the and boyar. Then, yeah. Oh, the, the good old boyars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, the boyars, who uh, were the Russian nobles and uh, basically controlled the Russian feudal system. But in your book on that subject, you point out it was in Russia it was not as bad as it was, for example, in Germany, France, and Britain, where the serfs were basically uh, you know meat, you know meat to be disposed of as the nobles pleased. But uh, in Russia, it was a little uh, different because there was not a, a a total uh, co cooperation between the boyars and the czar. Uh, can you elaborate on that? No, that's been a big issue of mine for a long time. And so you probably are thinking about the Third Rome because I have an entire section on serfdom there. Okay. Russian serfdom with nothing compared to the worst was probably Poland, um, where you had no central government. That means the oligarch ruled openly. Mm. Um, in Russia, because you had a strong crown, uh, the nobles, you know, they, they, the nobles received their land based on service. If they serve in the army, the diplomatic corps, or they lose it. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that peasants were organized in huge communes. It wasn't like there was any one-on-one -on -one dealing. And usually nobles would you know, be killed in battle. They weren't that much wealthier than the peasants. It's not what you think of a, a noble class to be. Uh -huh. Now, the exception to that was that Peter the Great abolished the, the uh, title of boyar 
and created his own very westernized uh, Northern European service nobility. Uh-huh. By the okay. time of Catherine the Great, who was a total disaster, it really did become the nasty kind of serfdom. Uh, okay. uh, long story about how that happened in the 18th century was a disaster in, in Russia. Now, that was rectified in the 19th century. And, of course, 1861, they were not just freed from any uh, – you know, but they were also freed from the association with the land. They were attached to the commune, but by the time of Nicholas II, that was uh, – that it also was removed. Serfdom in Russia was based around the idea that a peasant has to be guaranteed land under any and all circumstances. Uh-huh. And okay. no one can take that away from them. And um, but by the time Catherine the Great came around, even that was being that was being challenged. But when they were freed in 1861, it was uh, with land. You know, it could have yes. been a lot better if they'd done that in the American South. But um, they were they were freed within the context of the commune, and this is when the agricultural production just exploded. Okay, very good, very good. So uh, in Russia, the, the uh, feudalism was not as bad. It had a different and more, let's call it, it's a better, kinder, gentler form of feudalism than in Western Europe. Okay, and uh, you mentioned 1861 because we're going to uh, go there shortly because we're going to discuss the Jews and the American Civil War. But uh, so, what's the title of your new book, which is actually just came out and is about uh, Ukraine? Yeah, you know, I have so many either in production or coming out. I can't even keep up with them. Yeah, um, but my wife there's... is also my agent, and I really desperately needed a business manager. <laughs> right. But the one that's relevant to us is, um, well, my book on Putin, which came out in 2012. Russian populist, which is the only treatment of his political ideas, as far as I know, in English. Okay. But um, Ukrainian nationalism came out at the beginning of 2020. Okay. And I, I deal with these issues we're talking about in grave detail. Um, all, okay. all original documents, all, you know, I translate them, which is, gives me a headache, but <laughs> I have to teach myself. So, you know, and, and these issues I, I expand on to a great extent, how these all inter- intermix and what a legitimate Ukrainian nationalism could be versus what the illegitimate nonsense which is being promoted today. Right. Okay. And I'm reading from the uh, blurb here on uh, Amazon, Ukrainian Nationalism uh, by uh, Matthew Raphael Johnson. Ukraine from a Russian Orthodox nationalist like myself has been hijacked by Westerners and Uniots. What's a Uniot? A Uniot is uh, a formerly Orthodox person. That was converted to Roman Catholicism under the Polish Empire starting in 1595. They maintained the Orthodox rites to a great extent, but had to commemorate the Pope of Rome in their uh, in their liturgies. I see. And that became as many that, you know, the Ukrainian nationalists in the 17th century were at war with this because they were Uh allied with Poland. But as time went on, believe it or not, in the 20th century, that union group, I I was a union for a short many years ago when I was in my 20s. Okay. um, And I left them pretty quickly, although I learned a lot from them. Uh, the Uniots became the head of this extreme, you know, the, the bizarre nationalism that we're dealing with today. In fact, they purged the Orthodox of their uh, uh, from their ranks. This wow. is the case during World War II as well. And they're really an alien group. You can't be a nationalist and be connected with um, you the know, Poland or the Austrian okay. Empire. Oh, so, yeah, that's right. And that's, yeah. that's what they are. You can't be a Ukrainian nationalist and be connected with another country, right? <laughs> well, Ukrainian nationalism developed in the in – the, um, 16th and 17th century as a war against that group. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. You know, Pol- Polish nobles who were in debt to, to Jewish bankers who had created uh, uh, this, this movement, uh, very unpopular, as uh, a way to anchor themselves there. Okay. And their whole identity, their teeth were cut at war with this group of people. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. So uh, I can see right away, just just from the, let me just finish the first sentence here. Uh, uh, hijacked by Westerners and Uniots who loathe all forms of national assertiveness. Sounds like they're the first internationalists. Were there any Jews among the Uniots? Or is this simply a, a Polish slash Orthodox combo? That happened. Oh, well, you had yeah, you had it also had it occurred in the Middle East too, but um, this was a way you know the Orthodoxy was always going to be the rallying cry of the Cossacks and everybody else. You have to be Orthodox to be a Cossack. You can't uh-huh. be you can't be a Union or a Catholic. Right. Um, to be Catholic was to be Polish, possibly Hungarian. To uh-huh. be Ukrainian was to be Orthodox. It really is that simple. The okay. Unions uh, muddied the waters, uh-huh. and any time okay. the Cossacks would win, defeat the Poles somewhere, the first thing they would demand is that the Unions be thrown out. Right, And so many of the people had no idea because the, the, the point was to change nothing except the name of the pope. And all the way up to the 20th century, you had Ukrainians who had no idea they were members of the, of the uh, Catholic Church. Right. Um, and it was a gradual westernization to the point where they just you know, became papists in, in every sense. Yes. Uh, but initially it was really – it was a sleight of hand. It was a trick. Yes. Very well, it sounds like a secret society is what it sounds like. Okay. All right. So now your book, Russian Populist, The Political Thought of Vladimir Putin, uh, paperback January 1st, 2012, also available at Amazon. And just a couple of sentences here. Russian President Vladimir Putin is one of the most reviled politicians in the West. At the same time, few leaders worldwide have maintained such high levels of popularity. Putin's political and economic successes are too startling to be ignored. From his appointment as vice president on New Year's Eve in 1999, Putin has assisted in the rebuilding of a shattered country in a few short years. Okay, which brings to me this question. He got rid, uh, he got rid of the oligarchs that uh, were driving Russia's economy into the ground and exploiting the Russian people. But he, he obviously didn't get rid of all of them. What is going on there? He simply he didn't have the power. Okay. I mean, you're talking about uh, uh, making war not only on, on you know, billions of dollars, some of the yes. most powerful people in the world, but at the same time, they, they squirreled away billions of dollars in uh, Swiss and American bank accounts. Okay. Um, because they were all Jews, they, they simply ran to Tel Aviv. Um, let me give you an example. Like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, a young oligarch uh, uh, essentially stole the, the oil fields in, 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 in the east. He was on his way to sell uh, a bunch of Siberian oil fields to ExxonMobil, which would have probably meant – he was literally in his limousine heading there before the police stopped him and arrested him. OK. Uh, I, you know, and the only thing that would have made Putin more popular is if he would have shot him. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not about right. to do that. All right. Right. So he sent him back to hell <laughs> where he came from. <laughs> OK. Very interesting. Okay, so earlier on you mentioned the year 1861, and so uh, I think we need to do a kind of brief history lesson from, from Russia. We talked a little bit about Russian feudalism. But in 1861, and you know, the Civil War erupted in America, and I have told people about the fact that the Rothschild banking family, uh, one, one side of the family, the London Rothschilds, were backing the uh, let's call it the agitation for a civil war from the north through uh, uh, August Belmont and other Jewish uh, bank banksters and even through Karl Marx 
and some of the radical abolitionists. And the Southern, the French Rothschilds were supporting Judah P. Benjamin in the South and agitating for war from the South. So my view of the Civil War is that it was totally arranged by the Rothschilds in order to, number one, destroy the American economy because it was becoming a threat to their global hegemony. And number two, to just kill as many white, you know, white Americans as they possibly could. Uh, your view on that? Well, I, I uh, had to teach a um, Civil War course when I was teaching at Penn State Mount Alto, and um, we spent quite a bit of time on the Russian blockade of, of the ports of the north. Uh-huh. The Russian point of view was that a victory for the South – now, I'm pro-Southern, of course. Um, Russia didn't have any particular stake in the war, right. although they were out west. Uh, they interpreted a victory for the South as a victory for Great Britain. Okay. And, uh, and now, of course, the issue is Britain and France would have backed the South, but they needed a, they needed a big victory. Yeah. And Gettysburg was supposed to be – it didn't happen. Right. Um, and that, that's why they, they didn't do it. But the blockade was to make sure that they didn't yeah. want uh, the British takeover of, of southern fields. It's not like the South didn't have a legitimate case, economically speaking. They did. Sure. But it didn't have to be violent. And right. um, so that, that's, how, that's yeah. how the Russians interpreted it. Yes, uh, understood, understood. So this, uh, but also, wasn't there a movement in Russia? Uh, the, the Americans had several ambassadors sent to Russia even before, uh, well before Abraham Lincoln took office, and they were implementing what is called the American system of making the farmers self-sufficient by giving them the land, owning their own land, just like the farmers here in America did. And that that transition of economics came from America. Your position on that? Well, I've never heard of that before. Except, oh, no. Um, okay. That even then – well, not put in those terms anyway. Okay. Uh, America didn't have a huge presence in Russia at the time because no one could speak the language uh, at the time, which was a huge problem over there. But Britain, of course, had been for a long time. Okay. And um, in terms of direct ownership, well, they figured, well, maybe if, if – you know, there was no such thing as individual ownership in, in Russia. It never existed. It was communal ownership on, for very, very specific reasons. Um, that wasn't until the 20th – I think maybe what you're talking about is the 20th century okay. when the people like Vita wanted to break up the commune and, and have this individual land ownership, uh, which was really rebelled against. It wasn't very popular, and huh. a whole, only a handful – and they were getting land for free. By the time the Russian Empire fell, uh, the peasantry owned between 93 and 96 percent of the land, either communal or individual. Right. No other country okay. can face that. You had right. the Artel, which is a labor system in the cities. You know, this was a, a – all the best possible things about socialism, but a Christian and idealistic, not a Marxian idea. Right. You had every kind of – the church had – you know, you had a tremendous equality at the same time, except in the big cities. At the same time, you had massive, massive, massive uh, economic growth. I think the best way to put it is that um, the Great War from the 18th to, to, to this day was between Russia and the Russian idea and Great Britain and the British idea. Right. And that, if you, you substitute Britain for the U.S., uh, you're absolutely right in what you said. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Well, we did have agents, you know, that uh, were ambassadors to Russia. Uh, th they were not. I don't know how famous they weren't. weren't, weren't well known. That's for sure. Okay. So, but uh, the uh, idea that, uh, as it was presented to me, was that the American system that the Tsar uh, at the time was that uh, Alexander was it Nicholas, uh, who, who was the Tsar in uh, during the Civil War. Uh, Alexander the Second. 
Alexander II, that uh, he was trying to implement the American system by giving land to the peasants. But you're saying that they were happy with the arrangement and it wasn't uh, a system where they were they the absolute slaves of anybody and uh, that they were actually fairly happy and well off, right? Isn't that was the situation? Well, yeah. I mean compared with, with the Western peasant, you're absolutely right. Their taxes were by far the lowest uh, on the planet. Um, and the biggest problem, though, as far as Russian peasants are concerned, is in the northern and central sections, the yield was always very low. Uh-huh. The, it, the weather is harsh. You don't have a long growing season. And this is one of the reasons where the commune had to – they had to pull everything together and make sure that, that whatever they uh-huh. can get, they get. And that explains a lot of the Russian idea in the su- uh, southern and uh, – sorry, the central and northern parts of the country. You know, Ukraine had it easy because you had tremendous soil there. The American south had tremendous soil. But yes. the central northern regions of Russia, that was not the case. Okay, okay. So and this is also true in France where they – just before the French Revolution, there were horrible harvests because of bad weather. It was, uh, and of course the uh, king of France got all the blame for all of that, right, etc. And uh, yeah, and we know that the uh, uh, the secret societies moved in and uh, corrupted the uh, the government uh, on both sides, the, the liberal and the royalty. Corrupt, uh, they were corrupted by the, the liberals, and uh, and the, the great terror ensued. Okay, so you're saying that in Russia it was kind of a form of national socialism, where the hey, I've been saying this for years, almost. Okay. Uh, um... A royalist socialism, uh, okay. uh, Christian socialism, like you heard, there heard you in go. Austria. Absolutely. I've been arguing that for a long time. That, that's how I'm putting it today, yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay, so given the fact that the Tsar, uh, Alexander II, uh, prevented the British Rothschilds and the French Rothschilds from invading America uh, during the Civil War, this created a tremendous level of animosity from the Rothschilds against the uh, against Russia, not just the Tsars, but against Russia, and so didn't this lead to uh, the wave of assassinations by Jewish criminals, by Jewish Freemasons, etc., against Russian officials subsequent to this act? Yeah, um, yeah. At the end of the end of the nineteenth century, beginning of the twentieth century, these groups were almost exclusively Jewish, and those who defected from those groups. Um, uh, we're fully admitting that yeah, some of these okay. guys were the only non-Jew. You know, this is not wasn't a secret at the time. But the terrorism and the British did finance this. Rothschilds most certainly financed this. Was massive. You had ten, twenty thousand officials killed from like eighteen sixty, uh, uh, eighteen sixty-five to to nineteen o five. Wow. It was a, it was a, these guys couldn't leave their house in some cases. Yeah. Uh, Vera Zasulich, who was a friend of Karl Marx, uh, who tried to stab the uh, Governor General of, of Petersburg. Uh, you know, this is just one of, of thousands. Their the numbers were not very large, but they were well funded, and they always had diplomatic protection in London if, if they had to. The so-called revolutionary movement was based in London, as was right. Marx. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so, but the Jewish propaganda around that time is that the Jews were the most persecuted people on the planet, but they were the ones who were assassinating Russian officials. You know, the, the pale of settlement was not this prison camp. The pale of settlement, you know, they, they, the Jews couldn't live whatever they wanted. Right. They had huge establishments in Petersburg and in Moscow and places like that. But um, the attempt was to try to get uh, Jews to actually farm the land, which was a miserable failure. <laughs> um, they paid almost no taxes in the pale. They were not subject to the draft. 
and with all that, of course, they still they still can. There was no such thing as Israel at the time, right? Um, and but yeah, you know, to think that they were in prison there is is utter nonsense. They were yeah. extremely powerful, and it was a Jewish versus a, a, an Orthodox uh, uh, war right up until uh, God, right up until today. Very interesting. So well, now, what is today the position of the Orthodox Church vis-a-vis Jewry? Because what you're describing is an all-out war between the Orthodox Christianity and Jewry. You know, your average parish priest, I mean, if you, go to, if you go to Russia, even Ukraine today, um, our kind of talk about the Jews and, and Zionism is day-to-day. It's on the street corners, in the shopping, uh-huh. and it's in restaurants. Okay. It's not even controversial. Uh, uh, that's why the West had to take over newspapers and, and right. of course, the, 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 the faggage and stuff like that. Um, but every once in a while, some of the high-ranking bishops may try to be nice, <laughs> but overwhelmingly um, – you know, the popular, if there's any anti-Jewish group in the world, it's your average Russian Orthodox person in Russia. Okay. Um, I don't like this patriarch. The patriarch that was created under Stalin in 1944 has nothing to do with the patriarch before then, um, you know, up until, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was restored and then abolished by, this, by the uh, Bolsheviks under Lenin. Very complicated. Right. But he's, a, you know, he's in the WCC and all this nonsense and, and I'm not a big fan of his. But even there, even his underlings are going to fight him on this stuff. Okay. Um, the the uh, Judeo Masonic, which is the, the phrase that they use, uh, origin of the Bolshevik Revolution is a normal day to day position yes. of the um, of the uh, of the Orthodox clergy, and you have the three anti Jewish synods um, under Saint Gennadius of Novgorod in the in the um, in the sixteenth uh, uh, century, uh, which, which condemns so much of these machinations. That's built into the law of the Church over there. It's wow. a local synod, not an international one, but it's actually built into the law of the church. And I, on my website, uh, rustjournal.org, I have um, I have that in great detail. Yes. Okay, so when Hitler invaded uh, the East, uh, of course, which was totally communist at the time, my understanding is that Hitler was welcomed. The Germans were welcomed by anti-communist, anti-Jewish uh, people all through Eastern Europe. So you're you're verifying that's the case now. Of course, when he invaded, when the Germans invaded Russia, there probably were mixed feelings because the the communist uh, leadership would have you know looked askance at that. But my feeling is the Russian people would have you know who weren't communists uh, would have welcomed uh, getting rid of these Bolsheviks. Well, the the large anti-communist group was the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. Wow, which was based in the U.S. and had bishops in in Germany, Austria, and uh, uh, the the bishop, uh, the Metropolitan Seraphim Lad, L A D E, had okay. the title of the Metropolitan of all the Orthodox within the Reich. That was his title, okay. and he and his his bishop, the Metropolitan Anastasi, who was in New York, um, you know, couldn't get enough of Hitler. Hitler financed <laughs> the rebuilding of the Berlin Cathedral with his own money, right? And that's why you have Anastasi's letter, which I've reprinted. Uh, to to Hitler saying not only you know have you done a wonderful thing for us but you're the only hope we have right. in getting rid of of Joseph Stalin and the people the people wow. with him. and, and we hear it, was, it wasn't about just this. the military issue yeah okay uh, it wasn't just a military issue it was it was the fact that what he was doing the social justice the revolution that he was doing in Germany itself yes. was something that turned these guys on uh, Serfil and Anastasi uh, in his letters and I I've translated them I have them all over the place it's not just we want you to invade and they were they were praying for his weapons. Uh, you know, blessing German armies, and there was no problem there. 
but also that what you do in Germany, how you've rebuilt that country out of nothing after World War One, we need a Russian Hitler over there <laughs> as soon as you're finished. Uh, and I he says we that need openly. A, an American Hitler. <laughs> you know, so that's you know, amazing. How many people can do that? Yeah. That's amazing. And it, uh, all of this is totally covered up. That's why we hear nothing about Orthodox Church whatsoever in, in our media. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Okay. So uh, this is very important information that I was totally unaware of. So, okay. So, but uh, let's back up a little bit because uh, uh, between the Alexander II and his blockading of uh, the port of New York and the port of San Francisco, uh, again, this is something that the American people know absolutely nothing about, okay? This is utterly covered up that uh, the Russians are actually did this to prevent the Rothschilds from gaining an even bigger foothold in America than they already had, okay? So, uh, so the relationship between the Russian czars and Russian politicians uh, and the Jews, the international Jew, just got worse and worse and worse. So uh, it, it would have to be that the next episode we'd have to discuss is the uh, Russo-Japanese War. So uh, was this a Jewish stratagem against Christian Russia also? Well, to the extent that the Japanese Navy was built and paid for by London, okay, um, certainly their, their interests, their interest. but you know, that, if for those of you who get the Barnes Review, most of you already know that my uh, lengthy article on the Russo-Japanese War is on the front cover. Okay. This um, current issue? This was not a defeat. Uh, the current one, I think May current. or June, yeah. Okay. Um, and it was not a defeat for Russia. Uh, the Japanese were riding in, in Tokyo because of how badly the war was being run. Russia uh-huh. was using maybe 5 to 7% of its military power where Japan was exhausted, 100%. Most of it well, – you know, and I, I respect the Japanese. I, I do. I think they do deserve, uh, at least back then, a role in, in Asia because it was pretty much chaos everywhere else. Okay. But they were, you know, uh, the Russians tended to support China at the time and the British backed uh, Japan. And they financed and they encouraged this, you know. Um, and even Port Arthur, which wasn't even finished at the time, you had five assaults in that city, every one of which failed. Uh-huh. The commander of the infantry in that part of the world, the Japanese commander, killed himself. Wow. Or they, he went to the emperor and said, I bungled this so badly. Please let me – and the emperor said, no, only after I die will I let you find – he did. <laughs> uh, this was not – same thing in the Crimea, the Crimean War um, in 1850s. You had riots in London that this war is being mishandled. Russia took on the entire world, uh, the entire Western world at the time. And in the east, you know, first of all, you know, how far is it from Moscow to you know, 4,000 miles to the front, which was largely in Manchuria? Okay. Huge armies. Japan, um, they had similar – Casualty rates. Um, the Japan was over their head in debt. They had a draft that was so intense in Japan, it was, I think, from 16 to 55. Wow. They were grabbing anyone who could hold a rifle to suit over there. They were and bleeding. Pressing them. And Russia wow. was so far away from its home base. And this is, you know, and but in the Western media, and I've read some of the reports at the time, uh, oh, Russia is being defeated, Russia is being crushed, they're backwards, they're, they're you know. Right and um, the, the lovers of, of uh, the lovers of liberty in Tokyo um, <laughs> are, are are gonna are gonna you know uh, they're, they're gonna be good Englishmen. We're gonna support their economy. It's all the same nonsense from yes. Crimea to today. The media says the exact same thing, and it's it's uh, uh, the only difference, of course, was during the Soviet era. Then they were right. okay. Yes, 
Yeah, uh, because the Jews were in control then. All right, so because I'm familiar with reports of Jacob Schiff, who was uh, uh, actually a son-in-law, I think, of uh, Jacob Rothschild, the uh, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, that uh, he supplied millions of dollars to the Japanese to prosecute the war against Russia. So was this uh, the precipitating cause of the war, or was there were the Japanese simply imperialists trying to invade China, and somehow Russia got involved? How, how did that transpire? Well, I was just talking about this uh, with John Friend on the, the Barnes Review uh, radio show. Okay. And the negotiations between Imperial Japan and Russia were going fine. Huh. And I forget the exact date. All of a sudden, the Japanese pulled back and became incredibly hostile, incredibly uh, intransigent on, on everything. And the Russians were saying, what the hell's going on here? Right. There was no interest in war over there. And, of course, the issue was, just like in Ukraine today, the British were saying, don't give another inch. Ah. Um, you know, they, were, they were making deals with how they're going to carve up Manchuria and, and, and Korea and everything else, and it would, be, would have been perfectly fine. They had no reason to hate each other. But then the British did instruct them. They, they produced the navy. They produced so much of their steel, created their own factories over there, spent a fortune with the Rothschilds or the Sassoons and everyone else. Right. Schiff, or I can never keep them straight. You know, it's all the same bunch of people. Right. Um, um, had them say, no, no more, no more negotiations, no more. And Japan lost a ridiculous amount of men uh, in, against a war that wasn't even in their interest to fight. That's right. And unfortunately, it did lead to the revolution of 1905-1906 in the Russian Empire. Okay. Because again, the media was not reporting what was happening here. The media was simply lying through their teeth about these massive Russian losses and the Japanese victorious. It was nonsense. They didn't say anything what I just said about Port Arthur or any of the big battles. Uh, <laughs> none of the Japanese war aims were ever met, just like in Crimea. None of the British and French war aims were ever met. Okay. Same thing in Ukraine today. None of their war right. aims of the West have, have been met, not even close. Yeah. And Russia has for the most part. So they simply were lying either through ignorance or just because they were being told to lie. And so people are living in Moscow and St. Petersburg, especially St. Petersburg, think that the czar is mishandling this war. Right. Unfortunately, Tsar Nicholas II, who was a saint and was a saintly man, was not the best propagandist in the world. Royalists right. usually aren't. No, they aren't. You know, yeah. and, and that's why he lost the information war despite winning the war over there. And that's when the riots began and, um, and the Reds, of course, uh, they didn't win. They were, they were defeated. But the Tsar made a few uh, token – very interesting actually, not necessarily terrible concessions, the creation of the Duma. Uh, there was never really censorship under, under Tsar Nicholas, which is exactly the problem. Uh, I wish there had been. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you liberals know, so, running so wild. So it's connected with the revolution. Right. Okay. That's now. That's very interesting. So it just shows the power of propaganda against the leadership by outside people because you're talking about international Jew and their propaganda. So, and of course, the same thing happened during the French Revolution: uh, Jewish propaganda inflaming the people against uh, Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, they still celebrate Bastille Day in which there were only like seven or eight prisoners. <laughs> Total in the Bastille, right? And, and, and a couple of those prisoners were actually there, uh, by the fa put there by their own families because they they needed the, their uh, th these guys to shape up. So there were uh, only five political prisoners, or wh wh whatever you want to call. Them. And this is uh, it made it to an enormous revolutionary symbol by the French liberals. Okay, this just shows the power of propaganda over over fact. So. 
so you're saying that the czars were essentially totally innocent of any wrongdoing in both the Crimean War and the Russo-Japanese War, and it's just false reporting by the left-wing Judeo press that has caused all these great destructions. The only thing that prevented a complete and total takeover of the Western banks over the world at the time was Russia. Wow. I'm telling you today, the only thing that's, that's preventing a complete takeover of the ah. Great Reset 2.0 or 3.0 is Russia, and wow. especially the Russo-Chinese alliance. Uh, and that was the case there. And they, they took on in Crimea in the 50s, 1850s, they took on the entire world. The entire Western world was, was opposed to them, and most of those battles they won. Mm -hmm. If you go into any history book today, you'll see – that the uh, Russians were defeated, they were backwards, they were ignorant, all the same things over and over again. Right. But when you study the casualty figures, when you study the battles, when you study who went where, it just wasn't – it's not true. Um, you know, it's like British, the British in the Falcons War. The British lost the – they were slaughtered in the Falcons War. <laughs> okay. And, but, but, you know, you, I, I have a list of all of their losses. The, the, the Argentinians who were a white, peop, white group of people, only, right. you know, they lost one battleship. So um, it's whatever the press says, whatever they're ordered to say, whatever works. Now, they lost the war diplomatically, right. but not militarily. And okay. this is the press controls not just what's true and false, but what's real and unreal. Right. Yes. And, and this is the power of the press is to distort our thinking and, uh, as, we're, as the press is doing today, totally backing the Ukrainians, which is nothing but a Jewish dictatorship under Zelensky and the Israelis. Okay, and even and it's incredibly, uh, Matt, incredibly, the ADL stated that those Ukrainian Nazis are not so bad, <laughs> right? Can you believe that? That the ADL you know actually... something's off. Yes, you know something's <laughs> off when when they say this. You know, again, I'll say it again. There is a legitimate uh, nationalist argument to be made, and for most of Ukraine, the okay. problem is that Ukraine is so badly divided between Russian and, and Ukrainian speakers and those who speak on a mixture of the two, that there's no way. This, it's an artificial country in the sense that you have two ethnic groups. Uh, and the one, the Russian side, have had all their schools shut down and all their newspapers shut down. Right. They're looking at Crimea, uh, I mean, not even before the war, since 2014, and even 2004 before then. Um, they're looking at Crimea, whose economy went through the roof. The, min the minute they took rubles as their currency versus the Ukrainian hudivna, which is a, right. a you know, it's worthless. The, the Donbass, um, right? All yeah. of their, yeah, all of their bank accounts uh, increased in value by ten times. Oh, Unemployment wow. was zero. Immediate you improvement. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, right. Okay. Immediate. Just because they took a new currency that was far more important and more valuable than what they had before. Right. So Crimea again is that portion of it used to be Russia, uh, and and uh, Khrushchev gave it to. Ukraine for some odd reason. Maybe we, uh, we'll catch up with that as we proceed through history. But uh, what was the pretext for the Crimean War? Was it oil? What was going on there? Well, as always, it's the battle between Britain uh, or London, I should say. Yeah. And and the Russian Empire, the battle between oligarchy and monarchy, which okay. all of human history seems to be based on. That's right. Um, That's right. As the, as the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, fell apart. Um, the British essentially controlled the economy, and so I have in my paper on the I have a I have a long explanation of what happened. Um, and Russia, of course, was had defeated the Ottoman Empire several times in the years prior to that. They were in a position not only to take good chunks of the former Turkish Empire, um, they supported the an independent Egypt, which was a huge cotton producing area, by the way. Oh wow! Um, and this is in 18, uh, 1850, the huge boom over there. 
uh, just prior to the U.S. Civil War. The Russians right. backed him. Right. And of course, you have the Baltics. Uh, sorry, the Balkans, Balkans and, and yes. Central uh, Central Europe, what we call Romania today. And Russia was prepared to move into this. Now, the British went absolutely orbital at the idea that Russia now is, is going to dominate most of the Christians of the Middle East, who are Orthodox anyway, yes. and, um, and and Central Europe. And yeah. so they – they, part they, of their national the territory anyway, <laughs> not British territory. With, yeah. with the Ottomans as they did with the Japanese. They forced them to declare war that they knew that they couldn't win. Right. And they were defeated badly. But then, of course, you had the British. Very, it, it's eerily similar. Japan uh, – um, I mean yeah. – sorry, Crimea, Japan, uh, today's, today's yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. Very, very similar. And – and then, of course, you have the British infantry, the uh, British Navy and the French, the Sardinians, even the Austrians near the end. Uh-huh. And so the Russians had to have men all over their entire massive eastern border uh, – sorry, western border, western border yeah. while the British and the French can concentrate their forces there in, in uh, the Crimean Peninsula. Right. And, uh, and they still you know, did a, a number on um, – and yeah, they, they essentially fought to a standstill. Even Sebastopol didn't fall. The Russians just simply moved to another part of the city. They had been completely exhausted. There were parliamentary hearings on yeah. how, how you know, this in, in Great Britain of how they bungled this war so badly. Right. <laughs> okay. And you know who was writing for the British press at the time? Of course, Karl Marx, who was living in London. And right. he said this war has to go on. There were worker strikes in London, the so-called snowball riot. They were throwing snowballs at soldiers and, and policemen. And here we have Karl Marx condemning these workers. How dare ah. you stand in the way? All his all his articles that he was writing at the time, I have I have all his quotations yeah. in English, of course, uh, talking about you know the workers need to shut up, the British need to destroy our number one enemy, which is Russia. You know, Karl Marx, right. how, how, this man was not a pariah. The, the worker, working class, be damned. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. right. He was never about that. You're exactly right. Uh-huh. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So again, the parallels between uh, you know, it's a good thing we were talking about this uh, Crimea. The Russo-Japanese War and the current uh, Ukraine uh, situation are eerily similar. Eerily similar. Okay, so now, uh, but but since we're talking about, it, let's get uh, why did Khrushchev give uh, these provinces to Ukraine? What was the purpose of that? Don't forget, uh, Khrushchev was Ukrainian. Oh, he was. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, as was Brezhnev, and they'd always be made fun of. For their uh, for their Ukrainian accents. Oh, no in, racism there. <laughs> in Moscow, yeah, they always had their Ukrainian accents. Um, and the issue was, you know, Ukraine had always considered itself put upon, and there, there's actually a good oh. claim to be made. Oh, yeah. They were violently exploited by the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, and Khrushchev, you know, this is a post-Stalin era. Okay. Wanting to kind of uh, placate the very independence-minded Communist Party there, uh, gave, gave them all kinds of concessions. You know, the language. Uh, of course, okay. never the religion, but uh, the language, certain cultural things, uh, literature, and everything else. It didn't last long, but the Crimea was was part of this. Was part part of this post-Stalin uh, so-called reform under Khrushchev until he bungled the entire situation so badly he was eventually overthrown around 19, 1964. He was a disaster. Okay. Uh, and so uh, it was part of the post-Stalinization program from a Ukrainian uh, semi-dictator of the Soviet Union. Okay. All right, so so uh, so these two provinces now that uh, t- today in recent history, going back to 2014, that the uh, Russian ethnic group wanted to uh, live under Russian uh, rule as opposed to Ukrainian rule, 
Uh, and uh, there's, uh, you know, I guess that you could make a, in case of any sort of civil war where there's two different ethnic groups uh, fighting each other, uh, it reminds me of uh, President Wilson's 14 points that he brought to the Paris Peace Talks uh, uh, and the Versailles Treaty that uh, one of his points was that all ethnic minorities deserve to have their own national <laughs> assembly in their own country, right? So, But that, of course, was totally ignored by the Versailles Treaty and uh, the, the ethnic uh, groups that wanted independence were utterly, you know, shut down. And what did, what did they do? They created more Balkanized states, you know, such as uh, what is it? Uh, they're now it's Bosnia Herzegovina. Uh, what, what was that state in uh, in the Balkans that they created? There was four or five different ethnic countries. Oh, Yugoslavia. 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 Yeah. Exactly. So they created this. Uh, Balkanized state, which was guaranteed to have civil war and eventually fell apart, right? Also, Czechoslovakia was another such state where they forced the Czechs and the Slovaks to become one country. And so instead of uh, heeding Woodrow Wilson, it's probably the only good, good idea he ever had, was that all these ethnic groups who want independence should have independence. Well, the Yugoslav idea was fairly popular in, in Slovenian and, and Serbian, even some Croatian circles, because Italy, uh, under that buffoon Mussolini, wanted one of the Balkans for himself. Oh. He, couldn't, he couldn't defeat the Greeks. He was slaughtered by the Greeks. Uh, but these countries were too tiny in the Balkans to fight off someone like him, right, I uh, see. Not, having no idea how bad off he really, his military really was. And they formed this, um, this uh, Yugoslav idea under the, the Serbian monarch. And um, – the disaster of the depression. Then, of course, they attached themselves to Germany, which all of a sudden, in the in the thirties, uh, you know, the economy did do very well. And so the right. British had to interfere, overthrow uh, uh, Paul, and 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 put in uh, uh, King Peter. And of course, Germany had to invade and, and solve that problem at, at heavy loss for himself. Right. So I'm not necessarily against um, Vietnam in uh, sorry Vietnam yeah. uh, Yugoslavia in principle, but okay. it was a disaster because you have two groups of people. You have Westerners and Easterners all living in one country. It was a disaster waiting to happen. Right. Uh, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, just like we have in the cities of America today. You have Democrats in the cities and Republicans in the countryside. Even though they're more alike than they are different, it's still a disaster waiting to happen. Right? So we're, America has been balkanized and the American people don't know it. Okay. All right. So, so okay. So the revolution of 1905 – uh, because so you were saying that the that this uh, communist revolution uh, was instigated again by London, the London banksters, and uh, just be is this based on propaganda that uh, the Tsar had botched this war up so badly that uh, he uh, he deserved to be uh, what overthrown? Is that is yeah yeah yes. it did you know it was only really in Saint Petersburg, but. You know, there's nothing that will destroy a monarch's reputation uh, worse than a lost war. Right. So they had to create it. And you know, the Bolsheviks needed um, a World War I. Uh, the American left needed Vietnam in the 60s. Right. Uh, and the, the, the left and in, in, in the Russian Empire needed Japan. The uh -huh. distorted media reports were so bad. And this is all Nicholas living in splendor, which is utter nonsense. Uh -huh. uh, created, you know, it's a typical propaganda that you have with, with sure. Putin. It's the exact same thing today. Yeah. Um, and and this created um, a lot of unrest, and you had very well financed leftist groups all over the place, which now they eventually lost. 
Um, I have a paper on the Bloody Sunday shooting. It's one nonsense, not, not nonsensical right. thing after another. And uh, but as I said, he had to he had to um, engage in a few concessions in 1905, 1906 to to placate them. But that was right. just a dress rehearsal for uh, 1918. Yeah, uh, 1917. Yeah, uh, the uh, yeah. Bolshevik coup. Right. So uh, okay, so these are propaganda wars, and of course we now know uh, those of us who are paying attention. The Jews have been winning these propaganda wars for now for, well, for the last 1900 years, okay? They're still claiming that Jesus was a Jew and that uh, he, he's, he's the threat, the biggest threat to Judaism, right? And the rabbis, of course. But uh, the influence of the Jews in destroying Christian nations, uh, as you're explaining it now, is just really uh, their propaganda powers are the number one weapon they have. You know, they seem to have, you know, the, the, the discipline of psychology from Freud on was heavily Jewish, as we all know. Sure. They seem to have, because they're, they're a relatively small uh, minority, and yet they have tremendous power in terms of uh, both legal and, and economic sources of, of, of authority, yes. um, they need to have other ways of control. They can't simply, you know, raise an army. Right. There's not enough of them. And they used you – know, essentially the financial power ended up leading to the you know, purchase of, of, the, of the media. Right. Uh, and even under the czars, I mean there wasn't you – know, even Nicholas II said to his grandmother, Queen Victoria, said, uh, yeah, you might not like what the Russian papers are saying about you, know, you um, but, <laughs> um, but I can't tell them what to say. Right. You do that here in Britain, but I can't do that here in Russia. He said it out of principle, which was a right. big mistake. Yeah, uh, because you know uh, the press was even more irresponsible there than they are now. Yeah, to the point where most of this stuff is made up. American historians take the the Bolshevik media, uh, you know, the newspapers at the time, as yes. if they're news reporters, uh, and they were gospel. They were muckrake. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, just uh, just selling uh, headlines, basically selling headlines. So now there's something that a lot of Americans don't know, and even in uh, identity and patriotic circles. The fact is that the King of Britain, uh, I think it was George the uh, Fourth, if I'm not mistaken, or the Fifth at the time, and the Tsar of Russia, and uh, who was the, uh, probably the King of Sweden also, but the big three, uh, the Tsar, oh yeah, the Kaiser of Germany, they were yeah. all cousins, they were all related to one another. So how in the world can these three monarchs in control of these empires be unable to fight against Jewish propaganda. Well, first of all, after the defeat of Napoleon, the creation of the Holy Alliance and you know, the League of Christian Nations uh, was going to do just that. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, that was a way too ecumenical of, of a body. Unlike Berlin and St. Petersburg, the monarchs in Britain almost had no power. Uh, that was not the case. I mean, Germany and Russia are natural allies. I've been saying right. this for a long time. Yes. Germany says a lot of people say Absolutely. It. And both of those, just before World War One, economically were exploding. I mean, they were doing incredibly well. Oil was discovered uh, near Baku in the southern part of the Russian Empire. They, they were losing. The British were losing it. They yeah. can't fight one of these people, let alone both of them. So, uh, because they were first cousins, uh, yes. uh, Kaiser and, and, and the and the Emperor of Russia, uh, they had excellent uh, trading terms. Uh -huh. uh, excellent, you know. It, 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 there were so many Germans in the Russian service. Usually, the most loyal. Uh, were often had German names. Wow. Um, and of course, they were they were related. Uh, what did the Brit the London had to figure out a way to get Russia and 
in Germany to fight one another. Right. That that was their only way out. And yes. they figured that the Balkans and the use of the Austrian Empire as a, it was diabolically genius for them to do this. Yes. But if that war never started, we would not recognize our world today. It would be healthy beyond belief. Well, then. And British liberalism would be a, a relic of history. Right, right. Yeah, and of course uh, the Germans uh, were creating an industrial machine that was second to none. Uh, it was rivaling the uh, British, the English Industrial Revolution. Okay, and so that's another reason why uh, the globalists from London had to destroy Germany, let alone Russia. Okay, so it's now, how in the world was the Tsar of Russia maneuvered into fighting the Kaiser of Germany, you know, just as part of World War One? I. I mean, to me, that's as you just explained, they were so close in, in blood, their blood relatives. That uh, that how could they have been maneuvered into fighting each other in this way? Again, it's diabolically brilliant. <laughs> the answer is the answer yeah. is Austria. Okay, um, Austria controlled Bosnia. You had a Serbian nationalist movement trying to throw them out. Uh, Serbia had just uh, fought the Balkan Wars at great cost to themselves. They were completely exhausted. Right. Uh, Austria then invaded uh, Bosnia. They eventually invaded. Um, uh, the, the Serbia, as small as it was, and they were defeated. They were defeated three times. Really, with the understanding that Germany is going to back them no matter what. Of course, Russia was heavily allied in with the Bulgarians and, and the Serbs, and that's how it began. Uh -huh. Because Germans came to the Austrian uh, assistance. I mean, they were they were falling apart. They were Russia knocked them out of the war shortly thereafter. Russia came to the assistance of the Slavs in the area. Germany got dragged into a war. Right. That after the. Um, and, you know, the the um, prince that was that was shot, Ferdinand, was right. very pro-Slavic. That whole thing was ridiculous. They had no reason uh, to shoot that man. He right. had no interest in war with, with the Balkans. In fact, they the Austrians wanted. Yeah, he to was a liberal. He was a liberal comparatively. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. yeah, but but at least as far as as far as the Balkans were concerned, he was the one they wanted. He was not anti anti-Slavic. Right. Um, but then, but even the Kaiser said after those demands, the Austrian government were sent to Belgrade. The Germans, I have this right in my third room. And Kaiser Wilhelm said, "Okay, it looks good. You yeah. guys are you guys are fine now. You've made up for each other. Uh, the the demands that the Austrians made were ridiculous, but right. Serbia had lost so many men in the Balkan Wars, and yet it wasn't enough. Just like Japan, all of a sudden hardens and becomes intransigent before the Russo-Japanese War. All of a sudden, Vienna becomes hardened. All of a sudden, right. and then they right. invade. Even though even though the Serbs did everything they wanted them to do, they invaded anyway. Right." Promised that they were going to take. This is the perfect time to take all the Balkans, which would have been a, a disaster. Yes. And this is how Germany got sucked into a war, and how Russia got sucked into a war. The Balkans was the weak point, and the British know how to maneuver this, using Turkey to to the point where you have to take your hat off to this demonic, <laughs> uh, satanic brilliance. Right. It is absolutely brilliant how they could uh, tear two uh, cousins apart and force them to fight each other by exploiting some minor difference. And it really was a minor difference. But when somebody assassinates your brother, right, it's no, it's no longer minor. And that's how they got Germany. So, uh, so you would agree then that Germany was uh, the least combative force of that era. The strong, this is the case all over the place. The stronger the monarch at home, the more peaceful the country was. Okay. It was these parliaments that were screaming for blood. Not, not the monarchs. Uh huh. Uh, you know, they were whipping up war propaganda against each other. 
with a lot of British money uh, concerning, you know, dividing up the Turkish Empire and the Russian savages are going to come over. They this happened almost overnight. And yeah. um, and but the Kaiser had no interest in uh, entering a war that Austria was fighting with with Serbia. Yeah. But Russia, you know, had a problem here. We're not going to let these Austrians, you know, come in and, and, and they already yeah, at the end of World War One, they, they had they were uh, building uh, camps uh, in Hungary. So, um, you know, uh, so they were not going to permit that to happen. They right. ordered he ordered partial mobilization. Uh, and yet that fell apart very quickly. It was just the weak link in their relations that they exploited. Germany did not want this war and certainly did uh, neither did uh, Tsar Nicholas. The question was who was going to ultimately rule the Balkans. It wasn't going to be. Uh, you know, Serbs and Bulgarians, it was going to be a much larger power. Right. Yeah. Eventually winding up to be the Zionists because <laughs> they took advantage of Turkey's position uh, in controlling Palestine. And uh, once they overthrew Turkey, and uh, even though Lawrence of Arabia was fighting on the side of the Arabs, Arabs, when the smoke cleared, uh, his deal with the Arabs that they would regain the territory of Palestine, the Zionists nixed that. And, and they took it and they gave it to the Zionists. Okay, so and this is one of the ahead. reasons why Yugoslavia. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, just uh, you had a comment on what I just said. Go ahead. Well, now you see why Yugoslavia came into existence. Aha. Uh-huh. The okay. idea was to keep this from ever happening again. Uh, Serbia, Bulgaria, by themselves, they're too small. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, keeping this from happening again was the point of Yugoslavia. Unfortunately, the Balkans, such such as it is, uh, can't be in a unified state. But that came as close as you can get. Now, of course, it was the Italians that were financing the Croatian separatists uh, okay. as well as the Albanians. And so they, they did not help matters. And and early on, uh, Italy was working for London, not for Germany. That, you know, they, really? they were a drag on whoever they're going to work for, Mussolini. Yeah. Um, and he was he was doing everything he could to tear apart Yugoslavia. The Ustasha and, and the Croatian nationals were trained in Italy. Uh, huh. and, and so he was – he is the culprit there, but he wasn't necessarily uh, part of the Axis uh, powers at the time. This is a long time ago. Right. And yeah, before he, World know, War he caused II. a lot of trouble there. Okay. So, uh, well, wasn't Hitler uh, you know, informed of Mussolini's activities in there and that, uh, that uh, Mussolini as an ally was not a very good ally, just like Austria was not a good ally for Germany? I think any good historian needs to admit that when Mussolini was, was knocked out of power in 1943 and had to flee to the northern part, that was a victory for Germany, okay. not a victory for, for the Allies. Right. No matter what Mussolini did, he was a drain on German resources. Right. His armies were defeated by the Greeks uh, when he invaded through Albania, and I have a paper on this. Mussolini uh-huh. was a buffoon. Right. He had no clue about how to – he wasn't a military man. He didn't understand how to, how to prosecute a war. And he was beaten. There was a sign on the French border. It was so bad. There was a sign on the French border that said, Greek soldiers, please don't pursue Italians past this limit <laughs> on the French border. Yeah. You know, making fun of them, that they had right. been beaten so badly. And a lot of good Italians were killed because this buffoon didn't know what he was doing. Right. You know, the commanders were, were rotated. Uh, he had no idea. He thought, I'm going to defeat the Greeks and I'm going to be the new Roman emperor. Right. He was defeated almost right away. Yeah. Okay. And Germany had to come in and rescue him. Yes, understood, understood. Now, wasn't there a lot of civil war going on in Italy still? You know, going back to the days of Garibaldi and, of course, the Italian mafia, Italian mafia always supporting the Jewish banksters. 
that uh, on the same terms as the Freemasons, liberty, equality, fraternity, that was going on in Italy as well. And and uh, what's his name? Mazzini created uh, Young Italy, right? A communist organization designed to uh, subvert uh, Italian peace, right? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, um, Garibaldi, Mazzini, Young Italy, these were Masonic organizations. Right. Um, they were – I tell you, the, the papacy had, had uh, issued an interdict against them. But you know, so much of southern Italy for such a long time was Greek. Uh, Sicily was, was part, of the, part of Greece. Uh, uh, Magna Grecia. I mean th- this is where the Spartans were locusts. Well, Sparta's in Sicily. Right. Okay. Um, it took a long time to force the southerners to change their Greek names into Italian ones. So this was never a unified <laughs> uh, country. Right. Okay. Then the Arabs come in. Then the Arabs come in. So then you have actual you know, Italians in the far north with a lot of money and a lot of power yeah. looking at southern Italy as this. And Mussolini did everything in his power. Part of his agenda was to weld this country into one Italy. And like everything else he did in his life, he failed. Yeah, right. Well, because you're talking about three radically different ethnic groups because the northern Italians are ethnically Germans. Right. If you if you watch the Winter Olympics, you will notice that the Italians are, are pretty much nothing but uh, uh, you know ethnic Nordics, right? And uh, and then the, the the you're saying now the Greeks and the Arabs. I mean, how do you get how do you unify those three different groups? It, you, you don't. Well, what they ended up doing is simply banning uh, the Greek language. You know, I could go back to 18th century maps of, of Italy, and boy, there's a lot of Greek names on this. <laughs> right. And they don't okay. exist anymore. What the heck happened? Yes. So th- some of these people like in Calabria and, and, and Point South, uh, this, was, this was a Greek area. But um, after 1871, the point was to de-Grecify or to de-Hellenize uh, the southern half of Italy and Sicily. And to give them Italian names and Italian identities. And it never quite worked. And it's one of the reasons why southern Italy has always been um, far poorer uh, than the north. Uh-huh. But even northern cities like Milan in the Middle Ages, Milan was a Greek-speaking city. Uh-huh. Uh, and so this, you know, th- this is where – this is not nationalism. This is imperialism. Right. That right. sought exactly. to de-Hellenize. Uh, much. And then, of course, the Arabs, of course, came much later. And now Sicily is third world. Unfortunately, yes. because of because of the government in Rome, so it's just one disaster after another. And no one knows anything. Yeah, right. It's very fascinating how how these ethnic conflicts uh, break out and are always manipulated and, and, mo- and most often uh, staged by the international banksters. Okay, uh, this is an aspect of history that absolutely nobody knows about except those of us in identity and true historians like yourself, <laughs> right? And even a lot of white nationalists don't know this stuff. Right, how these wars have been staged by the international banksters. Going back, uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the Napoleonic Wars, how the five Rothschild brothers financed every every single army, including the French army, and the uh, armies against Napoleon. The the Rothschilds were making money hand over fist, uh, lending uh, and getting arms, shipping arms and goods to every single country, uh, in the in that theater of war. And can you imagine the panic in London after 1812 when Napoleon was soundly defeated right. in Russia to the point where the Russian army drove huh. that group all the way back to Paris? Wow. The Russian army was wandering around the cafes of, of Paris at the time. <laughs> really? Uh, and they Just were like able the Germans. for a period of time uh-huh. able to re- reconstruct Europe based on the Holy Alliance and similar types of organizations. 
Yes. It's, it's hard to do that when London is still around. London is still financing everything. Uh, they were uh, later on, the Sassoon branch of the, uh, the Rothschilds was making a fortune selling drugs to the Chinese in the Opium Wars. Right. Opium Wars, one of the most humi- disastrous, immoral things I've ever come across. Right. Uh, they get based on British free trade, just in this case with drugs. Yes. Um, and of course, well, who came in to support the Chinese? The Russians. Yeah. So right. um, the, the Tibetan Dalai Lama. I have a paper on this. Uh, Gyatso the Thirteenth um, had claimed, and there, there's some reason for this, that the Tibetan Buddhist uh, uh, prophecy of the great white monarch, who's going to rescue us from our enemies, uh-huh. and the Thirteenth Dalai Lama said, "This is this is our Nicholas II." Ah, uh-huh. and wow. they had a huge, and so now you had even bigger. And of course, Britain was on the verge of invading Tibet um, uh, from their base in India. Uh-huh. And eventually, of course, the Dalai Lama was overthrown. But for a long time, you had a large Eastern, uh, in, not necessarily Buddhism, but Tibetan and Chinese culture in St. Petersburg. Tsar Nicholas always thought that the future of, of the Russian Empire was to the East. Let the okay. West you know, keep selling drugs to everybody. Right. He saw this huge, unknown Eastern group of people, uh, China, Japan, Tibet, as, as his natural allies, as the Chinese and the Tibetans were, despite everything. Yes. The Tibetans actually had him as a religious figure. They didn't convert or anything. But the, he, he was a religious figure that's going to save them from the Masonic uh, uh, London bankers using the British Empire as their, as their instrument. Right. And you had the Dalai Lama actually talking like this before they overthrew him. Of course, right. now that office has been corrupted beyond belief. Yes. But during the reign of Nicholas II, this was a part of Tibetan religion that this great – the great white czar was his name. Uh, uh-huh. And it's of ancient origin. The great white uh, – Khan, whatever, whatever word they would use, um, whatever the original is, the great right. white leader from the far north is going to come and rescue us from our enemies. And that's how they viewed Nicholas II. Right. And so uh, I've always understood uh, American history as being whitewashed by the Jewish press. So they've done an even bigger number on Russian history. Quite amazing that uh, uh, all of and this. But, you know, I've dedicated my life to this. And, oh, my God, you know, sometimes <laughs> I think I should have gone into the funeral business like my father. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I think some of my enemies would like that, too. But well, that's it, a good business to go into because war makes a lot of customers, right? <laughs> well, my dad was not a poor man. It's, uh, it's a tough industry, though. Yeah, yeah, oh, day, I, bet. Was, I grew up there, just like in my girl. I was right, in the, right over it. Uh-huh. Um, and, and let me tell you, on a personal note, I, okay. I do think, because I worked there all through college, and um, being around death all the time and seeing these old gravestones in the cemeteries – it, my brain began to uh, uh, gravitate towards religion because, you know, this life is so short. I'm seeing there was a big um, grave of a few people who died in the Titanic near where I'm from in Union County, New Jersey. And uh-huh. some of their pictures are up in their old 1920s, uh, you know, or even before then, the outfits that were popular at the time. And, you know, I used to think that everything that these people believe, it's gone. Yeah. Everything. All the problems that they had are irrelevant. Being around death – uh, forced me to start thinking differently than everybody else. And that's one of the more distant reasons as to why I, I came to this. Right, right. Okay, so what drew you to Russia, uh, Russian history? What, what drew you there? Uh, a few things. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was one of the, not the only person, but even when I was in grad school in, in Lincoln in the, uh, in the 90s, what's going to defeat American liberalism? You know, liber, liberalism wanted to conquer the globe. Using the banks as their – now, of course, it's BlackRock and, and State Street. Right. Uh, far larger than the you – know, they have the bankers are now sitting on their board and vice versa. Right. Um, it has to be a nation that has the population, the ideological background, the sense of itself, and the massive natural resources necessary to be self-sufficient. 
Yes. And if that ever came into the run, I used to think it was Alexander Lebed at the time in the 90s before Putin, but they killed him uh-huh. uh, as you know, the commander of the forces in Transnistria, Central Europe. But um, and Russia had this um, role to play. And I knew this in the 90s. I knew this when when Yeltsin was around. Right. It just needs a competent leader. And I was the first one in 2001. I was uh, the editor of the Barnes Review at the time saying Putin is one of our guys. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, I was condemned violently by everybody, and I mean everybody. He okay. was KGB. You don't know anything. I convinced Willis Cardo. I convinced Michael Collins Piper that he is one of us. They ended up convincing everybody else, and now my stuff is front page on the, the Barnes Review that yes. that far back. Now, Very of course, good. today it's taken for granted, but it came from one person, and you're talking <laughs> to him. Right. Very good. Very good. Okay, so, yeah, but uh, what we're discussing here is the war – between the Rothschild syndicates and Christian civilization. That's what we're talking about. And uh, Russia has been a stalwart in the defense of Christian civilization, and so has America. And uh, you know, America ha- has been losing the war uh, against the, the Jewish oligarchs and the Jewish banksters precisely because they have infiltrated the Christian pulpit and, and uh, American politics. Uh, but in, in Russia... They weren't able to do that, so they had to stage wars against Russia uh, by by simply – and the propaganda, the anti-Russian, anti-Christian propaganda. So slightly different tactics against Russia versus America, but America has been infiltrated. The pulpit of America has been infiltrated horribly, absolutely horribly, and the churches are actually supporting Ukraine against Russia in the current battle. So uh, – and, and as we played that uh, clip from Boris Johnson, you know he is ramping up the militarism, something fierce against Russia. So they're they're trying this tactic again now. So okay, but we haven't actually talked about uh, the uh, Bolshevik Revolution yet, and the transition from Stalin to Khrushchev, Yeltsin, and then finally Putin. So uh, why don't you take us through that because uh, it's obvious to me that the Jewish bankers, because we know that uh, Jacob Schiff again was involved. He he, uh, gave – what's his name? Uh, 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 He was a Jew. He wasn't even a Russian. Uh, uh, Trotsky? uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Trotsky. Yeah, Trotsky. Uh, he, he provided Trotsky with uh, $20 million in gold, no less, to uh, send uh, communist troops over to fight against Russia. And uh, in Germany, the, uh, there was, Lenin was financed by Jewish banks as well, another $20 million. And he was sent through a sealed train during World War I to Russia to prosecute the Bolshevik coup. So here again, we see that outside forces financed by the Jewish oligarchs, uh, again, were used to overthrow Russia. So, and and, uh, and then uh, Stalin, and and of course there was an internal struggle between Stalin, Lenin, and Trotsky. And so take us through that. How did all that work out? Well, I have another book uh, called The Soviet Experiment. Okay. Which came out, I think, in 2019. And I deal with these issues in in agonizing detail. Okay. Mostly you deal with Lenin and Stalin. Uh-huh. Okay. But the thesis – there's a few theses that are all connected. Number one, the Soviet empire never at any point in their history gave a damn about the working class. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the Communist Party 
um, was essentially a transmission belt where all the wealth of Russians, anyone else in the empire was then you know, brought into the, the pockets of, of the party. The party right. owned everything. That's what a yes. planned economy is. That's right. Um, and you read Solzhenitsyn. Uh, I don't even know if his 200 years together has been translated yet into Not English. Fully. I know I've translated pieces of it for my own purposes. Okay. Uh, parts of it are anyway. And he's the first one to tell you this. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, the Western powers, not for a split second, not for a nanosecond, ever assisted or wanted to assist the white armies. Uh-huh. They gave money and support uh, to the Reds consistently. The whites outnumbered them, could yes. outspend them, and yet no one would sell them weaponry. Right. Uh, they made a lot of mistakes, of course. But um, the whites got so desperate that most of their weapons were coming from captured Red stores. Wow. Uh, okay. The British abandoned them. The British could have crushed the, the international right there in Petersburg if they wanted. Sure. The Japanese could have done it in Siberia. Um, they, they could have crushed them from London. That. <laughs> right? And yeah. The, yeah. And, and the third thing is as far as Russian uh, Soviet industrialization is concerned, this was financed and set up and created by um, Western European, especially American companies. Right. Now, Anthony Sutton, as many of you know, uh, has a three-volume set on how the U.S. not only built the Soviet economy and maintained it, but the Soviet military as well. Right. And unfortunately, Henry Ford um, built the largest uh, truck plant in the world in Soviet Ukraine in right. 1936, and it was the uh, foundation of, yeah. entire, yeah. of the entire Soviet uh, automotive industry. So where yeah, he the, saw a profit, he all of a sudden, his anti-communism was out the window. Really? And he wow. had massive investment there. Yeah, but the Kamba, well, the Kamba River truck does, plant. Yeah, Kamba River. Uh, yeah, yeah. it was built by Ford. Yes, absolutely. And it was okay. still producing uh, weaponry during the Vietnam War when I was supposedly fighting against communism, and the Kamba River truck plant was producing weaponry to fight against me. It, yeah. Well, exactly right. And my father was a veteran of the Korean War. Okay. Uh, neither one of those wars would have occurred had Hitler won uh, World yeah. War Two, of course. That's those right. Were precisely because the U.S. supported Stalin. Right, but in Sutton's, but Sutton was, of course, from the, from the Hoover Institution. I don't agree with what he says about about Hitler, but I do agree what he says about the USSR. Right. He goes through every major American company. Uh, the Gulag was put together by American firms. Wow. Um, by the time by by 1918, 1920, when the Soviets finally defeated their enemies in 1921, 22, um, you did the industry was been destroyed. Most of their people were either dead or or in the West or in hiding. They had no foundation to build a, an industrial economy. Right. Until the, the U.S. came in and made a fortune. They were they were investing massively in the Soviet economy in the 20s while they were in the 30s, while their own economy at home was was being right. destroyed. Uh-huh. They had these huge markets. They were training uh, uh, Soviet uh, technicians. Uh, okay. They were having tours of, of, of Western weapons factories. This was American and, and you know, French and British uh, right. from the ground up. Yes. And the thing about Sutton's book is that he has receipts and he has the bank statements and he has every possible proof you could imagine right. uh, to show that this is the case. The greatest secret of our era, or you know, the 20th century and the early 21st century, is that the Cold War is largely a myth. Yeah, right. it's true. The U.S. and the Soviet Union had their disagreements, but the U.S. had their disagreements with Britain and France too. Yes. It doesn't mean they were at war with one another. Certainly ideology wasn't the issue because capitalism and Marxism are very similar. But um, – Financial the sanctions that we see yes. with yeah. Putin uh, on, on Russia, these brutal sanctions which are failing, that, did, that, that never existed in the Soviet era. There was yeah. no threats of war with the Soviet Union. There was no uh, sanctions put on Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev or Andropov or anyone else. 
um, you had full brisk free trade between the U.S. and the Soviet Union consistently to the point where even Reagan tried to stop it and he couldn't. Yeah. You're not going to tell a billionaire where he's going to make his money. Right. <laughs> right. And, and he can hire an assassin to shut you up. Yeah. 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 The British and the American goal, the British and now the American goal is to finally, once and for all, capture that massive landmass with all those natural resources and a huge, very well-educated market. And labor force. That's the uh-huh. ultimate goal. You can't right. have the victory of the New World Order, which now is called the Great Reset. Right. You can't have that be victorious with Russia in the hands of the Eurasianist and the nationalist movement, especially in union now with not only China, but India. India is really uh, uh, the, the war between the U.S. and India is getting nasty. India okay. is saying, you are not going to tell us where we get our oil from. You're not, you're right. not going to tell us where we get our machinery from. Yeah, yeah. And they're just alienating everybody. Right. But especially, this did not exist throughout the entire existence of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yes, especially since uh, Bill Gates injured all of those Indian children <laughs> with his inoculation campaign, right? Which again, the Western media or Jew-controlled media has not been talking about at all. Okay, the hazards of the, the Gates vaccine industry, right? So, yeah, so it sounds to me, uh, Matt, that the 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 old allies, because India used to be under the thrall of Great Britain and the, and the Rothschild and Sassoon banksters, that uh, that has now gone under. And uh, China was actually created by the same Soviet uh, Jewish bloc that created Soviet Russia. And it seems like the, the, this these alliances, these old alliances that were created by the international Jew are falling apart. What do you think? I, I I've been preaching this. For a long time now. The okay. war in Ukraine is over. I mean, that war is over. I don't, when anyone says that's been over after the first week or two, there's nothing. There's no Ukrainian government. The, Zelensky is not in Kiev or anywhere else in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and it's the humiliation. You know, the Great Reset gets imposed on Western Europe and the U.S. and Russia invades Ukraine. That's right. their response to all this, to support a national socialist state in Russia and, and Luhansk and, and Donetsk and, and, and Crimea for that matter. Okay. Um, you're right about China, of course, except for one thing. Okay. 1976, Mao dies, who was an animal. Okay, right. And the nationalists, the Han racial nationalists, arrested his whole clique. Wow, okay. And created, well, the, the Gang of Four and uh, everything, they were, they were thrown in prison. And then from there on in, from aiding Deng Xiaoping and all the way up to today, they developed a far more racial uh, national socialist system. This is, Willis Carter was the first one to tell me this. And, and I didn't like it at first, uh-huh. but it happens to be true. Okay. It is a national socialist system okay. uh, taking a fourth world country after Mao's destruction. Once he and his wife or his, arrested his wife, wife right away, who was the leader of the, of, the, of the successors, it was no longer a Marxist state. It became a, a national state with a large okay. state sector dedicated to targeted investment, everything else that a nationalist right. government right. Uh, yeah, would do. Yeah, in fact, uh, their relationship to the West is as a nationalist government, although it's nationalist communism as opposed to – I don't know if I would call it a national socialist, but uh, the uh, – what do you call it? The uh, iron fist from uh, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party and the, the military, the uh, red Chinese military, you know, runs that country. But uh, you see this really odd combination of a communist overlordship allowing – Western-style entrepreneurs to run all their businesses because that's the only way a business can make a profit is if it's run by an entrepreneur as opposed to a government bureaucrat. Your comment? Well, only I – mean, it is a national socialist state. You can't have a communist country with entrepreneurship. 
It doesn't make any well, sense. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, now, they yeah. have central planning, but it's not domination over capital. It's, the, okay. it's, it's like South Korea used to do, like Russia does today, uh, like Iran did for a long time. It's targeted investment. Where okay. can we do well? And Donald Trump, you know, he used to you – know, they stole all our jobs. You know, like the Chinese came over and dismantled the plant in Detroit and brought it to, brought right. it to China. No, the American government financed their right. uh, move to, to China, but they have to be 51 percent Chinese-owned as any intelligent country is going to do. Right, uh, right. You know, after okay. you know, they bounce back, you know, their, their economic growth – I mean in general we know is, is, is amazing. Their unemployment rate is relatively low. But after their GDP went up 20 percent. In, uh, in the middle of, of, of 21, okay. instead of bailing out the big businesses, the Chinese government actually directly assisted small, small medium-sized business. That was their, that was their drive. Okay. And that's why the, 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 the virus was finished very quickly. And an American-owned uh, uh, research lab in, in Wuhan, which, which had – well, actually multinational. Right. Uh, which you – know, Fauci. China has a state press. They have Fauci and Gates. Uh, Yes, uh-huh. of course. Yep, yeah. all the same people, and people think, "Well, this is a Chinese government institution." It's no <laughs> such thing, right? It is. It is. Um, it, if anything, the investment mostly came from from the yeah, West. The West, yeah, uh, right, yeah. And Western because banks. of how they handled the post virus uh, world, right. their economy went through the roof. Um, they're, they're having problems now. We don't. Uh, we, we talked yeah. about that before, but nothing yeah, like away. the US has. Nothing right. like Western European uh, Western European economy is, but in you know in January twenty one and a few months into eighteen point three percent did their economy grow? After right. that was eight percent, then five percent, and because of of how the Western world is, is flat and deeply in debt, it's really hard for them to recover. But there's an organization, the most uh, important, powerful organization in the world, and that is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Okay, and that was the foundation of the Russo-Chinese alliance. A military and otherwise. Okay. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization also has most of Central Asia, uh, Iran, and even, believe it or not, Turkey has applied for, for observer status. Uh-huh. Armenia is okay. in it. Um, this is also then the foundation of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is going to finally put that – that's the last – now my book on China is called The Final Nail, Nail in the Coffin. And this Belt and Road Initiative – is I don't know uh, China. I don't know when it's going to be finished. I'll let you guys right. know. But okay, uh, the final nail in the coffin is going to be the Belt and Road Initiative, which will throw liberalism completely out of out of economic contention. Okay, what's that um, called? Sure, uh, so, uh, the Belt and what's that called? The Belt and Road, or the Belt so-called and Road Road Initiative. Yeah. Belt and Road Initiative. It's, okay, it's the rebuilding of the uh, economic infrastructure of Central Asia, going right up okay. into Central Europe. Germany is also involved in this. The U.S. The U.S. wants to nuke Berlin, to be honest with you. After all, they're, they're not listening to sanctions. They're not supporting right. the U.S. in anything concerning Russia. And you have several European um, states investing in this massive yeah. uh, Russo-Chinese project and even parts of Africa. Right, Because right. the profit motive you – know, these are state-owned banks uh, versus the West where not only are they all liberal yeah. ideologically, but they have this massive usurious profit motive. That sure. means China can go to these other countries and give them far better deals. Right and far better terms than, than the, the Rothschilds. That's why they're <laughs> right. winning. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, it really, does seem like the uh, coalition that the Rothschilds have established in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries is beginning to fall apart. And uh, it, it, it reminds me of the prophecy in the Book of Obadiah, where it says, uh, "Edom, you know, your allies will turn against you." <laughs> okay, it seems like that's what's happening today. 
But uh, I just want to come back to a point you made earlier that the American corporations that were building the Soviet economy were making tremendous amounts of money. Who was paying them? Who was paying who? The the American corporations that were building the Soviet economy. How how were they getting paid? Because it um, wasn't because well, Russia, the Soviets didn't have the money to pay them. No, no. This was essentially foreign direct investment. Okay. Where they would create an institution, they would bring over labor, but they would also be training Russians. And over time, Russians slowly but surely took over. Or Central Asians, whoever was running it. Yeah, right. They simply didn't have the manpower. Okay. And it took a while to get off the ground, but once it did. There was tremendous profits uh, to be made. Now, I've read Trotsky on this question, okay. and he really gets funny when he wants to be. He was, of course, working for the Western media at the time. Yes. And, and he said, oh, it's only the will of the working class ha! that caused the industrialization of Russia. In the, in, in right, the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they had to mystify it. Stalin was so – Stalin realized that their, econo- their economy was so intertwined with that of the U.S. and, 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 and Western Europe. He was actually worried about and, – and Sutton talks about this – Soviet independence. Right. That's how heavy <laughs> the Western investment was. Yes. So they, right. would, they would invest into a region okay. and slowly bring that region into, uh, as you say, uh, uh, American forms of doing things. It wasn't quite successful. The Soviets eventually took it over, but not before these, these Westerners made, made a fountain of money. It wasn't immediately profitable, as you kind of hinted. Yes. But it didn't take long for them to train the right people to you – know, Ford brought a lot of his own people over. Right, but he also kind of made it into a into a, a Russian Ukrainian institution over a short period of time. Either right. way, they made a small fortune. Right. Well, uh, Sutton in his book, The National Suicide, he talks about the fact that a lot of these deals between uh, so supposedly Western free free market corporations, which there really is no such thing, uh, were th- those deals were supported by the Depart- U.S. Department of Commerce. Okay. Which means that banks can can uh, fund it. Your, your comment. Well, I mean, I, I I knew this for some time, but it was really sharpened with all of the all the evidence you could ever want from uh, Sutton's three volume work, as well as you know National Suicide, which uh, had uh, to do with military hardware. Okay. Yeah. Everything that came from uh, the U.S. and 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 Western Europe, and that's why you had. Uh, the U.S.-Soviet Friendship Society, ah, right. uh, CFR, you, know, you had groups like this all the time. Yeah, promoted by were, were very economic. wealthy, yeah, very wealthy Americans who supported communism. Yes, it was the wave of the future. Yeah, and it has been. <laughs> that, it's, it, it, this is the biggest secret economic secret of of all time. How the the so-called West has been financing communism for the longest time and still is, okay? Still is. And uh, so, okay, so let's bring this now up to the Ukrainian-Russian situation and uh, and that, uh, that warmonger speech that Boris Johnson gave that we played at the beginning. Uh, is this nothing but bad, uh, a bad script that... Uh, how in the world is Britain going to fight against Russia? How in the world? There's no chance of it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Last I checked, the British military has like 20 people in it. You know, <laughs> okay. it it's ridiculous. This is rhetoric. This is nonsense. Yeah. Uh, even after the Falcons, I mean, that's why I mentioned the Falcons. The, the British Navy has been slashed to the bone even before the Falcons, let alone afterwards. Uh-huh. Um, you know, when you have the U.S. doing all your dirty work, militarily right. speaking, why are you going to spend a fortune? on your own military establishment. Only the French seem to have, you know, the French dropped out of NATO. 
yeah. under De Gaulle. They're probably going to do it again, as is as is Germany. Yeah. They're going to be dragged yes. into this, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's nonsense. It, it, and Britain is really the only yeah. so-called because the Rothschilds live there. The Rothschilds yeah. live in, yeah. in London. That's what right. London is. It, yeah, and it's really the only ally that the U.S. could ever count on. I, I wouldn't even count on Japan anymore. Right. Um, okay. They're not gonna, they're not going to have a world war with China over this stuff. Um, and not over the fact that that the U.S. is being outperformed and they're lashing out at their opponents because they can't keep up because they're indebted because they have massive unemployment. They have to lie about their inflation rates. Right. They have uh, zero zero uh, interest rates since 2008 with nothing coming out of it. The entire economy is based on financial derivatives right. of, of, of manufacturing in other countries. Speculation. And, right. and this is what they do. There's nothing left. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so and, and and of course the petrodollar is collapsing and the you know US dollar so called, you know, Federal Reserve note is collapsing. Other countries are refusing to accept it in exchange for their goods. The uh Bretton Woods agreement which uh, came as a result of World War II that created the uh the, the monopoly of the the Federal Reserve note over world currency is falling apart. What's going to take its place? Well, when um, during the COVID nonsense, um, because of the massive bailouts of corporate America uh-huh. done through using BlackRock as their as their agent, you had what used to be an oligarchy turned into a monopoly. Okay. Um, of course, we all know who controls BlackRock. They're all right. Hindus, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, they're all Hindus and Muslims. Yeah. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity. They're all under BlackRock's control. You're talking about total control of between twenty and twenty-five trillion dollars, right? Uh, which means they could leverage they could leverage more than that. The world GDP is like ninety trillion dollars, right? They can do as they please, but they realize that there's another problem. They can't extend any more credit to the American consumer. The American average household debt in, in the U.S. is something like sixty thousand dollars. There's not enough dollars on this planet. That's right to, to bail them out. Pay, pay off uh, pay off this debt. Yeah. Um, the, as I mentioned, the Belt and Road Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the massive uh, – once the, the smoke clears here, the uh, – no one's going to – you know what the U.S. is saying? Uh, this is almost comic. They're going to get their nat- – Europe's going to get its natural gas from Africa. That's the, that's the new uh, – can you imagine? Uh, uh, can you really? imagine this? There, there, there's no infrastructure there. Right. First of all, Africa is on the Chinese side anyway. Uh, right. you know, Nigeria is swimming in oil uh-huh. and yet Shell pulled out of there. Because the rebels blow it up every every, every right. all their institutions. <laughs> right. Could you imagine going to Europe is going to be freezing pretty soon and say, "Oh, don't worry, we're going to get oh, it from man. Ghana and Mali." Yeah, this is the yeah. nonsense that that they're that they're pushing. Yeah, but yeah. now you have okay. an, an open monopoly uh, that where there is now no more. And you heard me talk about this at the conference we went to uh, last year, right? About what BlackRock really is and okay. how this so-called so-called Biden administration say that in right, place, right. That idiot, he doesn't know where he is. He's like yeah. Nelson was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Yeah. And um, and they they decide where the credit goes, where the investment goes, but they live in their own ideological bubble. They don't realize, you know, employment in America is probably roughly twenty percent, twenty five percent if you include underemployment. The inflation rate, as Paul Craig Roberts has told us, uh, is far higher. They simply know how to oh, fudge yeah. all these numbers. The U.S. is the only country in the world that you could have a massive crash and depression and have no one know it. Yes, right. Because right. they live in this bubble. I mean, yeah. white homelessness is exploding in every city. Just right. because the media doesn't cover it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. 
Yeah. So this oligarchy is going up against a far more motivated, far healthier economy yeah. in the Eastern world. Amen. Um, the yeah. okay. the uh, Chinese yuan is based well, – well, now the ruble. Uh, Putin has made sure the ruble is based now on three things. It's based on state power but also oil and gold, all three. And the Chinese yuan is also attached to oil and gold. Okay. Most of the gold uh, on the planet really belongs to those two capitals. You could have zero economic activity in Russia over the next five years, and it won't affect anything. They have this huge cushion. They've had trade um, uh, surpluses for uh, a decade. They paid right. off their loans early. Yeah. There is no debt anymore. Uh, no one has faith in the dollar. Yes. Uh, yeah. the, the trillions of dollars that both Peking and, and Moscow have, if they don't feel like dumping that tomorrow, which they could, that's yes. it. The war's over. Yeah. So they're in such a good position compared to the West. The West is disintegrating. Yes, because of uh, Jewish policies for the last hundred – well, since the Civil War. <laughs> uh, 1913. Yeah, yeah liberalism. Be, yeah, uh, 1913 be, being a bi big nail in our coffin, right, the creation of the Federal Reserve and the tax-exempt corporations that were created the same year and the IRS uh, uh, 16th Amendment also created that year. Uh, th this was a big nail in the coffin of America economically and politically that we're still struggling with, okay, as long as the Rothschilds control the, the Federal Reserve Bank. So, again, so uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that Eastern and uh, maybe African and Arabian and, uh, and India uh, are shrugging off the uh, Rothschild influence? And going well, in a different direction? Is that what's happening? Yeah, I've been spending some time on the Indian case. Okay. Um, the new deals, both in energy and electronics, between Russia and India has led to the U.S. threatening Ooh. New Delhi. Wow. It, it's not – these people are under British control. You don't go – the whole anti-colonial movement still motivates that people. You don't go to a, a, a billion people and say, we're going to tell you what to do with your economy. Gandhi they lives. Said, we don't trust you anymore. <laughs> right. We don't trust you anymore. We don't trust the dollar. If you're going to steal some Russian assets in, in Western banks, that means yeah. you can steal our assets. That's right. No one's going to trust the U.S. anymore. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it's, it's illegal theft. But now you have a huge increase in oil exports to India. You have increases in, in you know, the trade has gone through the roof. And the U.S. is saying you better stop this or, we're, or you're in trouble. I guess we or, get spanked. And, yeah. and they said go to hell. Okay. Yeah. So now yeah. India and China have been fighting one another, but that war in the Himalayan mountains is not severe enough. They're all members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization together. Right. In fact, India okay. and Pakistan together okay. are members now, of that organization. Yeah, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, now, why in the world is Xi Jinping uh, locking down Shanghai and essentially killing all its citizens? Is it because uh, – what's the reason? What's your uh, take on that? Let, let's be careful um, about reading any media report as to what's going on over there. Okay. Uh, in 2020, uh, essentially what they did is they took the Wuhan uh, area. They created almost like this moat around it. Okay. And um, and it, the problem was over in what a few months, and they were right. back to normal. Okay. And they'll do they'll end up doing the the, the same thing here. Uh, and, and what they'll do instead, as I said already, they're not going to just bail out the massive uh, uh, conglomerates. Their action has been to localities. You know, China is fairly, fairly decentralized uh, against most people's understandings. Yeah, okay. And, yeah, city states. You know, yeah. Yeah, and, and what they're doing is despite the massive bubble in, in real estate, which is, you know, which is solvable, 
but and but but again, it's because the Chinese government lost control of the market. That speculation took over. Right. Speculation, That's right. these sin there, you know, yeah. and so right. they have they, they're going to have to clamp down on this, which they can do, but the West can't do. Yes. So right. I'm not okay. trusting any media outlet as to what's going on over there at, okay. at the moment, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the whole thing is being sold as an outbreak of COVID. Now, and we know COVID is nothing but, but fake news to begin with, right? So, uh, you know, but this is how uh, the Western media is trying to sell everything. They, they still take COVID seriously and uh, the, the lockdowns, which were designed to empower the corporations and destroy small business, which is the only competition there is for the globalists, is small business, always has been, right? And so this is another takedown of small business and the middle class. And this is why the Chinese policy makes the most sense. This is why the state, if, it, if it's run by the right people, has to be involved in these decisions. You can't right. just have you know usurious corporations deciding on, on their own interests. Right. Uh, supporting small business and banning, like it did in South Korea in the, in the 60s, banning right. speculation can only come from the state. Right. It can only come from that intense Han racial patriotic fervor that they, fervor that they have over there. Right. Um, you can't okay. argue. You know, the Chinese do have the largest economy in, in the world, not the U.S. Yeah. And they actually produce things, unlike the U.S. They're in right. Yeah, they have are... debt. They're in a much better position than the West is. Let, let them yeah. let them you know, yak on it. Just like the first time around, it's not going to last very long. Well, all our military hardware is imported from China, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. But uh, a personal anecdote, because uh, uh, we will have about uh, nine minutes left, uh, less than that actually. I don't see Western Europe being dragged into another war. That's the last thing every NATO country wants. Okay? and But NATO, the, the leadership yeah. of NATO, of course, is allied with the banksters, and they're the ones who want war, but not the nations. So what gives? Uh, I, I don't think they're going to be able to pull it off. They're, what's what's going to happen? Well, I, you know, reading between the lines is something that we really have to have to master as a skill. That's right. Germany is just not going along. Okay, that's they're not good. going along. That's they, they're good news. so heavily intertwined with the Russian economy that they're not listening to anybody. And okay. the fact is, a lot of the the big Russian banks aren't even sanctioned. Gazprom Bank isn't isn't sanctioned at all. They're okay. too heavily involved in the European economy. They, they you can't shut yeah. them down. Yeah, coal, uh, oil, and then you and, have uh, these investments. Yeah, uranium yeah. and other oh, products. Yeah, they would get them from Russia. Yeah, the, the Russian economy, the, as far as GDP is concerned, it's about nine percent based on oil. It's a big myth that they're dependent on that. Their exports right. are a little bit higher, but it's certainly their most strategic and okay. talked about resource. They're yes. not going to get natural gas and oil from from Nigeria, uh, like the U.S. wants them to do, a, a hundred times the price now. When, when when the Russians will sell them like they're doing to India, they're selling oil under market. Under market value, uh-huh. uh, and they're still willing to do that to Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> they were doing that right until the war uh, got started. Uh, it, it's not. There's too many Russians over there. Right. Germany has always been pro-Russian and vice versa, and the French are sick of this. They're 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 not going to be involved. They, they have a history of dropping out of NATO. Right. You have the Italians <laughs> talking about leaving the EU, um, and Britain is all that there is. You have the condemnations uh, all over European capitals. Yes. Of American policy here, keeping this war going as long as humanly possible. Right. Turkey, Turkey is getting a lot of its hardware now from Russia anyway. The the S three hundred, S four hundred missile system. That's right. NATO. They have access to all of NATO's uh, uh, material. Yeah. This is well, this is a a broke 
uh, senile, decaying uh, third world indebted Western economy that right. honestly still believes that they're the first world and that they're going to be able to tell other people what to do. And right. it's really – it's pathetic how it's, how it's going out. But yeah. when you have an animal wounded, backed into a corner, what is it going to do? Yeah. And that explains out. the situation today. Well, yeah. that's also when they make mistakes, right? And I think this right. war against Russia using re- Ukraine, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Zelensky said, uh, this is really uh, pathetic and, uh, and really brutal. You know, he said, we're going to fight uh, Russia to the last Ukrainian. I mean, yeah, to the last Ukrainian. But uh, you know, the people supporting this war aren't the Ukrainians. It's outside. No, uh, yeah, go know, ahead. You, the, the quote you, you did at the beginning of the, of the program. The Ukrainians have no training in these weapon systems. They're still whatever. You know, there's nothing left anymore. But they, back when they still had an army in a country, it, they were using old Soviet models from the 80s. Wow! So the British, <laughs> let them yell and scream. You know, within the first 48 hours of that war, all of these donated weapons were destroyed on the ground, as with most of the Ukrainian air force. Yes, um, they know where all this, the, all these things are. These are all symbolic measures. Um, but you know, Putin's never been more popular over there. Okay. And I guarantee you he remains popular in, in most of Ukraine. And uh, what a disaster where you arm you – know, like Zelensky did early on, arming the common population, which means automatically there is no such thing as a civilian. The minute you do right. that, the whole right. distinction between soldier and civilian breaks down. So you can't blame Russia for doing anything, but they've moved very slowly right. trying to minimize civilian yeah. casualties because there's Russians everywhere, and they know they still have yeah. plenty of support in the Ukrainian economy. They don't want to look west. The only future they have is in the east. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Ukraine has been employing uh, mercenaries from the west, you know, volunteers from America, Canada, uh, you name the, the western nation. And Russia said, if those, if, if we find those guys here, we're going to kill them because they don't have the, the rights of a soldier, <laughs> right? They're mercenaries. Well, they'd be treated as, as criminals rather That's than right. uh, as criminals. a criminal army. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't see where this is going. I, I don't see how the Rothschild strategy using re- Ukraine as the sacrificial lamb against Russia is going to succeed because, well, no, number one thing, uh, the the Russian defensive system, uh, I forget what it's called, the EMP, I think EMP weapons. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've addressed this issue, but uh, well, the electronic uh, explosions, yeah, right, that they can uh, essentially neutralize any guided missile. I mean, uh, they have the capability, and so does Iran. The capability of neutralizing any of these uh, superb guided missile systems, yeah. electronic stuff, blah, 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 it's not going to happen. Well, because of both the Chinese and Russian technology, really the Navy is now pretty much obsolete. Okay. Because Russia can knock out, and so can China, knock out an aircraft carrier group from you know 500 miles away. Right. right. So these things are – and the U.S. is still going to pour money into this because of its symbolic value. But these right. are all completely uh, uh, obsolete things. The electromagnetic yeah. pulse, I think, is what you're talking about. Right. The hypersonic the weapons, the S-400 right. and beyond. Uh, the missile shield was as far superior to the to the American. Nothing's getting through here. Yeah. Uh, this war has been over. It was over the first week. So and it's just, the Ukrainian government disappeared. It's smoke and mirrors and, and Jewish bravado <laughs> that is keeping this thing going. Uh, but it, it doesn't look like uh, – and obviously – the support – the only groups that support this war here in the West are the churches and the corporations. 
Right, and, exactly and of right. course, yeah, and, and of course, some misguided American patriots, <laughs> right? Okay, oh God, yeah. I I don't see how this how they can pull this off. It, it looks to me like a a failing proposition, unless and they they can't even start a nuclear war because of the EMPs. Any such yeah. missiles will be intercepted. So uh, to me, yeah, it looks yeah, it looks like it's, it's over. Yeah, well, that's been over for a very long time. You okay. go back to my broadcasts and writings for the last five years at least. I've been saying the exact same thing. So the last the way I think the last thing I'm going to say here, um, okay. as we wind up, yeah, don't underestimate the fact that the people you talk about, the the people living in this bubble, yeah. the elites of all fields in the West, honestly believe that everyone thinks like that. Don't underestimate right. that fact. Yeah, they really believe right. it. Yeah, they they're, they're deluded. Hate Putin. Yeah. They truly believe that. When, when, cause they only socialize with each other. They only watch CNN. They only deal with each other. They don't know our point of view except in caricature. Right. And so that's why when they come up against us, they don't know what to say. That's, that's right. That's why they have to ban us. That's why they have to have CNN. That's all these people know. Yeah, yeah. And they Facebook, honestly believe Twitter, that this is the only way right? to go. And it's going to destroy yeah. them. Right, right. Well, in, in terms of uh, the inflation we talked about briefly a few minutes ago, uh, it can't be less than 10%. It's got to be way more than that because two months sure. ago I bought a, a half pint of honey. It cost $4.50. I went yep. to buy the, the same half pint of honey today, $8. That's way more. The way that they, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the basket of goods measure of inflation is bad because they simply – when something gets too expensive, they substitute it with something else. Right, that's and true. And this is a right. we, we Paul Craig Roberts is the best author on this, uh, okay. where he explains in some detail how they manipulate the how they manipulate it. We so can go to the, the store the and see the inflation that's not reflected in official statistics. That's right, uh, or in the mass media, <laughs> right? Yeah. Again, uh, that that's that bubble, that great delusion that the Bible talks about. It says in the last days the world will be subject to a great delusion. Uh, the uh, the book of Baruch says it's a great stupor. The world will be uh, falling into a great stupor. Uh, you can call that COVID, C-O-V-I-D. So it looks mm-hmm. to me like this is the last gasp of the synagogue of Satan in their control over the world. Uh, I don't see how, how they can assemble another mercenary army like they did against Russia in uh, in World War One. And against Germany in World War II. I don't see how they could do it yeah. again. What's your the take? money yeah. isn't there. The support isn't there. The, okay. the, the, the people aren't there. Russia and, and, and China are insulated. Um, you're right. It, it is the last gasp of, of liberalism, and, and which is demonic to its core. Right. And Russia is going to be at the core, uh, the core of, its, of its destruction. Without Russia, as really the center of the world right now, yeah. the, there's no hope. There's no hope against liberalism. No, yes. none. Yeah, and of course, uh, Putin has outlawed uh, homosexuality, right? Homosexual marriage. Uh, uh, that uh, disgusting group called Pussy Riot, which is you know trying <laughs> to uh, you know liberalize Russian thinking in all of Eastern Europe. Uh, none of them are buying into it. They're just not buying into it. Okay, and, and he's he's subsidizing growing families, right? Which exactly. is a huge policy of his. Yeah, yep. which which Gaddafi did in uh, Libya. I was just thinking that. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, right. And, but therefore, Libya had to be destroyed. Gaddafi had to be murdered. But Hillary Clinton was the one who did that. And, okay. and Russia's a little bit of a different target. Yeah, a little bit different. Right. Okay. All right. So 
your input has uh, been fantastic, Matthew. Uh, I wish you nothing but the greatest success in selling your books. Again, uh, give us the titles and uh, so people can look them up on uh, Amazon. <laughs> is that the only place the we can get them? To do. <laughs> yeah, right. The best thing to do, my, my headquarters now is Radio Albion, where I have several of my shows and my books are available there. Oh, okay, Radio great. Albion. Uh, okay. Now, um, the website that's been put together for me, um, okay. it's very simple. It's theorthodoxnationalist.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, you can access it from the Radio Albion site. Okay. Theorthodoxnationalist.wordpress.com. And the there Orthodox. you have all the ways to donate to me, all the uh, my books, uh, every possible, all the things that I'm doing. Um, uh, the merchandising is coming out pretty soon with, with some of my stuff. And um, okay. and and that that's the one-stop shopping here where you can assist me and do everything in your, you know, uh, yeah. searching for my full name online on Amazon is going to help too. And of course, a lot of my stuff is also at the Barnes Review, barnesreview.org. Right. So very uh, good. I'll send you that. I'll send you that website. And you can put it in the description. That's probably the best thing to do. Yeah, outstanding. Will do. All right. Thank you for your input today. It's been a, a real eye opener for me personally, and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, Eli. Okay, Anytime. Right. Bye bye. Take care. All right, folks. That's the input today. What's going on in Russia and Ukraine? You'll never get to get this perspective from the mass media. Not in a billion years. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody.